Thank you so much for being a listener of the Deep Believer Show. We love our listeners, we pray for our listeners, and we love to hear from our listeners. So if you have anything you'd like to say, if you have any testimonies, or if you have any questions, leave us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. Again, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being a listener of The Deep Believer Show. Hi, everyone. This is Jennifer Bagnashi with Deep Believer. Today, we have an amazing guest. He's actually a return guest, John Fenn with Church Without Walls International, CWOWI.org. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited to have him back again. This time, he talks about his first encounter with Jesus, how he saw him on a road in Mexico. He asked Jesus the most hardest questions that we ask, or the most, not so much hard, but most common questions. Why are people born into difficult households? Why are children starving? And he also gets answers from his guardian angel about what their uh, perception was when Lucifer fell from heaven. You're going to want to hear all of this. And he talks about a whole lot more. So don't turn the dial. John Finn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jennifer, for having me back. It's a it's a blessing and pleasure to talk to you. Well, John, last time was amazing. I mean, we love you. People love you. They love we love the God in you. So let's start off. We already know about your uh, childhood. So if anyone is watching right now, you can go back to our other video. But now we're going to start off with your road in Mexico. You were on a missions trip to Mexico. And, yes. Mm -hmm, and you were on the road walking with a woman named Dora and someone else. Tell us what happened and how you met Jesus on the road. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, the, the very first time I saw him was April of 86. And let me lead that, if I could just share into that real quickly. Um, that was when our youngest son was still in the nursery, church nursery. I was the associate pastor, but I was sitting back to be close to the nursery. And uh, and when I saw the Lord, I was just standing next to my wife. And suddenly I turned to the right and the Lord was there at the end of the row. There wasn't anybody else in the row. And this is an important distinction because one builds on the other, if, if you'll allow me that. And he, he motioned, he said, come with me. And so I walked down the aisle or the row and then up to the front. And there was uh, a Navajo pastor, a pastor from the Navajo nation that our church supported. Everyone was in worship and everything else. And the Lord was standing there. And the pastor, the Navajo pastor was the only one sitting. And I stood in front of him and the Lord said, I have a word I want to give him. Uh, so I want you to give it. And I said, Lord, you're here. Why don't you give it? And he looked at me and he said, just do it. And so I put out my hand to lay hands on him and outflowed this prophecy of encouragement and comfort and just really how pleased the Lord was with him. And then it started to trickle off, uh, like turning off a faucet. And as his word kind of trickled off, the Lord melded into me. And, and I'm six foot six, which uh, is about almost two meters. And the Lord's about 5'11", you know, about, what is that, 2.8 meters or something, 2.7. So, or, or yeah, and so or 1.8, 1.7. And anyway, so he kind of melded into me and he said, remember, my son, when you lay hands on a person, it's as if I am laying hands on that person. And immediately I was back in my 
in rhyme row standing next to barb and the music was still going the song you know it's charismatic church so you got to sing each verse about six times right so <laughs> so you know i was standing next to her and i said i said barb i said did i leave here did i leave your side and she said no so i knew that was in the spirit so what it means is that i was standing there physically but in the spirit my eyes were open to his realm and somehow, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, whether in the body or out, I don't know. When that happens to you, it seems very normal, very natural. The Lord says, you know, come with me. And I just walked down the row. I didn't know that I was in the spirit. That was my first experience of seeing him. So flash forward, that was April of 1986. So October 1st of 1986, I am in uh, Mexico in a, a village called Laguna de Sanchez, which is some way outside of Saltillo, New Mexico, or Saltillo, Mexico. Uh, the interpreter was a woman named Dora, who'd only known the Lord for about two months, and then the missionary named Carl. And here's what was happening, Jennifer. This is that to, to share the difference so that people can become aware of, of our mind has to pick up on what's happening in our spirit man. And that's what happened to me first in April, is that as I was worshiping, my spirit started stirring around in me. And here I was a few months later in April or in October, and my spirit man is stirring. It's almost like having butterflies, you know, excitement before you get on to stage or to speak to somebody, but it's not a nervousness. It's just an excitement. And my mind noticed it. And this is key to walking in the spirit. This is key to being sensitive to having your eyes open to his realm. It's key to receiving words of wisdom, words of knowledge or anything. Your mind has to pick up on these things. So the, the missionary Carl and Dora, the interpreter, had had gone on ahead and I'm I'm slowing behind. I'm 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 contemplating my attention has been grabbed and this this stirring around in my spirit. And uh, it's like, in my mind, I'm going, what is going on? What is this? Why do I have this excited, happy feeling on the inside? And right, and the road, the road made a curve to the right, a 90 degree turn to the right. And I, when I turned to the right, it also then in about 20 feet made a, a, law, a jog to the left ahead on up the little slope of a hill and back into the main part of the village. And so when I turned right, I heard myself say, Jennifer, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't like, oh, that's what it is. I heard myself, it just came up flowing out of my spirit. It's Jesus. And when I heard myself say, it's Jesus, you know, it brought my, my eyes up off of the rocky road where I was walking. And it's Jesus. And boom, suddenly the Lord was standing there about 15 feet away from me, just, you know, three, four meters away from me. And I looked at him and I said, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> because you know it's the same way that peter up on the mountain said hey let's build some tents one for moses one for elijah you know let's have a meeting here let's have a camp out because when you're again like i said when you transition into the spirit realm it's it's seamless it's seamless it seems so normal so natural i imagine that's the way death would come i imagine that would be the way the rapture comes there's just a seamless transition that happens and i am and at this point, I could see him and everything else around me. My eyes were opened up into both realms at the same time. It's rather like in Second uh, Kings 6, when Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army. And, and the servant is afraid because of all the chariots and all the horses and everything that are against him. And Elisha prays and said, Lord, open up my servant's eyes 
And, and so he did so, it says the Lord did so, and he saw the chariots of fire surrounding them. So both men saw both the natural realm and the spirit realm at the same time. That's what happens with me most often. And that's what happened at that point. And so when I said, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm here to meet the needs of the village. And I said, oh, it's great, Lord. I said, I said, there must, there, people must need healed uh, in here. So why don't you just walk around the village and, and I'll just follow you and I won't get in your way. I promise. I mean, I'm actually saying this, this is, this is, we're, you know, I, I won't follow you. I won't be a bother at all. You just, you just walk in there. Just let me observe. I'll learn so much. If I could just watch you, you know, lay hands on people and, and, and bring healing to people. And, and I said, how can I help? And he said, meet the needs of the village. And then like that, he was gone. And I was left standing there. I'm going like, Wow. So, so, you know, I'm there to hold a service in the, in the little church and I'm thinking about that and I, I'm, I'm contemplating, what does he mean? And then suddenly he was there once again, he let me, he let it sink in. And then he, he appeared again. And I said, I said, Lord, I said, this is great. I said, I need to call, tell Carl and Dora that you're here. Let me get them. And I, they were going up to the left uh, up the road and just talking among themselves and weren't aware of anything. And I said, let me yell to, to Carl and Dora, hold on, Lord. And just as I turned to do that, this light came out from the Lord and it just was like a, just enveloped everything. And I saw Cor Carl and Dora just disappeared behind this curtain of light. And then it was just suddenly the Lord and I in all that glory, uh, just standing there, you know, 15 feet from each other. And he said, I want to teach you how the father communicates. It was like, whoo, it was just, it was so amazing that it seemed just normal. You're not overwhelmed thinking, oh, wow, this is so cool. I got to write it down. It's just, okay, this is normal. This is normal. It just seems some completely normal. Like a friend might come up and say, hey, let's talk about, you know, let's last night's ball game. I mean, it just seems so normal. I was overwhelmed by his presence. Once I was in the spirit completely, once the natural world disappeared, I use the phrase in the spirit because that's what the apostle John used in the revelation in chapter one and verse 10. He talked about in one ten. he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a voice that was behind me. And that means there was no natural realm. He was just in the spirit. And then in revelation four and verse two, it says, I was in the spirit and I heard, and I saw a door opened in the heaven and I heard a voice saying, come up here. So again, he was totally, the natural world wasn't there. So Initially, I could see both realms at once. And then when that light, that curtain of light just enveloped us, then it was just the Lord and I, and I was in the spirit fully. So with that, no other distraction, the love coming out his eyes was just so strong. It was so tangible. It was all, you know, I grew up in an age and, and men, hopefully some of the those watching this and listening will We'll be able to relate but back when i was a kid there was a cartoon i think his name was deputy dog and deputy dog would get a doggy biscuit and when he got that biscuit he would eat it and he would go mm, 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 and he would float up in the air and then he'd float down you're too young for that i think Jennifer. no my father would always no my dad loves cartoons Okay. So he's, yeah, he, he likes stuff like that. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's how I felt because the love coming out of his eyes was like a, a hammock. Mm -hmm. 
It was, it was so solid. I just wanted to run and jump like that cartoon dog and float and just settle into that love. It was so totally consuming. It was, it was really my first lesson in grace, that grace has nothing to do with the receiver of the grace. Grace is always in the heart of the one who gives it. And because of that, there was such thoughts of my own failings, my sins, my frailties, my imperfections. At that point in my life, you know, I was married, three kids, I still am married, three kids, but I'm saying they were younger, you know, my imperfections as a father, my imperfections as a husband, you know, sins and missteps and everything else, all that did not matter at all. It was just enveloped in that love. And as I looked into his eyes, and again, you know, we're at this point, we're maybe 10 feet from each other at this point, because I've moved further, uh, closer to him. And, and suddenly I am pulled into his eyes and I don't know how to describe it other than standing there with connected by this liquid love. And then I'm pulled directly into his mind and into his mind. And suddenly I was flying through space. I, you know, I was in the mind of the Lord and I was flying through space, all those stars, all those galaxies. And the first thing that struck me is I'm not getting any closer to them now than when I was on, than on earth looking at the stars at night. I think, you know, I was raised, you know, thinking Star Wars and Star Trek and just this blur of light. And it's like, no, 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 the distances are so vast. You know, I wasn't getting any closer to anything, but I, I was just there just in space looking at these stars and somehow intuitively from within me, I was curious and I was looking, I remember looking to my top left and there really wasn't a top bottom you know, left, right, except as my body was oriented. So, you know, I was looking at my top left and, and my eyes were as good as I needed them to be. I could, no matter how I focused, I saw more stars behind more stars, behind more stars, behind more stars, you know, all the way through. And I was looking somehow for someplace where his presence did not exist. And instead I, I, I saw this, I heard this, it was like a rolling wave, except it was like shimmering um, you know, shimmering heat on a hot um, road surface or something, how it kind of shimmers. It was like a shimmering wave that was coming back to me. And it, it was his voice saying, I am here. And it was rolling on. It was deep and thundering. And I, and I, I remember looking opposite. I remember looking down into my lower right as far as my eye could see. And it just star upon star upon star, just furthest reaches, just far, far away. And again, a rolling wave of sound like a shimmering light it was coming was rolling and he said i am here and i suddenly was standing right back in front of him and i said oh lord you are the creator you are worthy to be worshiped you are worthy to be glorified and honored all praise to you lord you are the creator you are worthy to be worshiped and and that was just my honest exclamation at having done that and just suddenly i'm standing before him again and then I looked at him and I said, I'm a product of your imagination. You thought me up, didn't you? And he looked at me and said, that's right, I did. And I said, that means you spent the same amount of time on everybody who has ever lived or ever will live as you spent on me, right? And he said, that's right. And I said, that's part of what you were doing before Genesis ever opens up, because you were the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You told Jeremiah before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you and called you as a prophet. I said, you were thinking us all up before creation ever happened. He said, that's right. And I said, well, then, uh, then in my mind, I pictured this uh, images that I had seen, again, right, you know, my generation 
being raised with places you've never heard of Biafra, for instance, the famine that was going on there in these TV images. I remember our first color TV, you know, and pictures of, of a mother holding a, a, trying to nurse a baby and she doesn't have any milk and she's starving herself and the baby is starving. And that image from, from my childhood, from early on came back. And, and at the same time, I thought of, uh, well, first thing I said, I said, how could you do that? I said, how could you let little children die like that and be born into such horrible circumstances? You're the creator. How could you, how could you do that? Uh, for with those babies and he looked at me and he kind of tilted his head and he said don't you know they're with me and in the ages to come they will grow up and fulfill their destinies and I just went whoa and then I took the next step and I said okay there's a lady in our church at the time named Maria and she was a single mother chain smoking loved the Lord nervous wreck because her her son and her daughter who were teenagers were driving her crazy and i was the associate pastor at the time so i was always over at their house you know getting there before the police were called or when the neighbors were were fighting with them and and stuff and then on the other hand i thought of my childhood friend who was born with a, a spoon in his mouth a silver spoon in his mouth and had everything that he ever wanted and also claimed to be a christian and so the the disparity the unequal lives of of the one who was born as a rich kid and claimed to be a Christian had it so easy versus Maria in our church that I was always helping out, you know, with those kids uh, and trying to, trying to settle arguments and everything else. And, and so I looked at the Lord and said, how could you do that? I said, that's so unequal. And he looked at me and he, he went back to that. He created, that he thought us up and he said, when I created you, I looked through the corridors of time and I have graced each person with the gifts and everything that they would need to get through life as they depend on me. Remember, he said, all things were made by me and for me. And so for everything to work right, it has to be in me. So that Maria has to depend on me 100% because I have given her the gifts according to her circumstances. And as she depends on me 100%, I will see her through. And then he referred to my friend and he said, similarly, your friend has been graced differently. And he's been given what appears to you to be shallow gifts, but to him, it still takes 100% of his effort to rely on me so that both are relying 100% on me according to the graces that I have created them with just blew my mind it's like wow it suddenly makes sense that's why you know in romans 12 3 paul said i speak through the grace given to me i speak through the grace given to me according that the the that the measure of faith has been given to everyone i can only speak through the grace given to me you can only speak through the grace given to you barb and i our oldest son had the umbilical cord around his neck and a slipknot when he was born and so as we speak right now, he's 42 years of age, but mentally he's about four years old. He's in a wheelchair. He is the friendliest kid you've ever wanted to see in a 42-year-old man's body. He is the life of the party. He's never met a stranger. We roll his wheelchair through Walmart and through Lowe's and through stores, and he is greeting people. He's petting dogs. He's talking to people. He says funny things, you know, all of that. He loves the Lord and he's had the Lord tell him, when you get to heaven, I'm going to walk through the mountains with you. And he's been very excited about that. But that is our measure of faith. We have friends in um, another country. I won't even mention them because I don't want to necessarily embarrass them, but they have a, they have a daughter who is worse off than Chris, you know, just 
cord around the neck in a slipknot, but just a few seconds more caused more brain damage to their daughter. How they cope, how they deal with the severity of, of her, their daughter's limitations, I have no idea how they do it, except that the grace of God has been given to them, the measure of grace. Uh, the measure of faith has been given to them and the grace that goes with it. Grace and faith always go together. Second Timothy 1.9 says that God called us according to his purpose and grace. Purpose and grace always go together. Faith and grace always go together. There's always a purpose to it. So when I look at the grace given to me and I look at the grace of Maria and I look at the grace of my friend, and I look at the grace of everybody else, we've all been gifted according to what we will encounter in life as we depend on him. And it's that's just incredible. And that's why First Corinthians, what is it, 1029, I think it is, or something that says that he will not allow us to be tested above what we're able, but he will, when the temptation comes in, make a way of escape so that we are able to bear it. Um, that he is able, because he knew ahead of time what we would face and graced us accordingly, then he knows the limitations that we have and also the limitations to the circumstances he won't let the devil come get us beyond what we can what we can handle um but there are times we have to depend on him 100% so that was an amazing thing so are you saying that the lord puts people in certain situations or allow them to be in certain situations or households because he's given them the strength to overcome it only through him though Ye yes and no um he doesn't he doesn't do it but he's, as creator, he's well aware that we live on a, in a fallen world with a devil roaming about seeking whom he may devour. And because of that, he deals with the situation that's been given to him. Remember, what people don't realize is Adam gave the earth over to Satan. You know, in, in Luke 4, and I think it's about verse 6, Satan tempts Jesus, says, I'll give you the glory of the world. He took him up on a high part and said, you know, here's the world. Here's the glory of it. Just worship me and I'll give it to you because it was given to me. You know, it, it was it was a temptation, and that was a true statement because of that. And I think it's Hosea, I want to say 4, 6, I don't I have to refer to my Bible, that says, they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously with me. And, and so, yes, the Lord knew it all ahead of time, but the fact is, here we are in a fallen world. So he had to equip us as creator. He had to equip us with the gifts, the grace, according to what we would face. And because there is no such thing as a perfect family, perfect children, or anything like that, his grace, his empowerment in him is far and above overcoming uh, whatever the, the devil of the world can throw at us. So uh, he does allow us to be born into certain families, uh, obviously, even though I look at my dysfunctional family and I'm thinking, really? You know, and I look at others who are born into the standard, you know, perfect family and it's it's uh you know but i it is what it is you know and and so he he has graced us accordingly knowing ahead of time how we'd be placed and and it goes from there and that's why he's given us the grace in all our situations it, it's not so much that he's the author of it but he certainly has allowed it absolutely because the devil is free and loose but at the same time he has graced us with gifts according to what we're going to face. And so everybody should have confidence that whatever you're going to face in life, the Lord saw before creation ever happened and looked through the corridors of time at your life and everything that you would encounter. And he graced you with all that you would need in him, in him. That's the key. It has to function in him. Uh, otherwise you're not going to overcome. 
you know, the, the circumstances can, can overwhelm you. You're born into a family, but you know, and, and it is what it is. But when you depend on him, that's you enter that that overcoming greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And you have the authority to, to use the name of Jesus and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But you have to be in Christ to have him strengthening you, you know. And so it, it's interesting from his perspective. It's like each each one of those Maria and my friend have to depend 100 percent on him, even though outwardly to us, it's like how unequal can you get? But internally, in their hearts, they have to depend 100% each on him. So in your book, Pursuing the Seasons of God, you mentioned how the Lord wants to normalize the heavenly realm with us. Before we get into the deep stuff that you're about to you know, get more into, explain that part to us where the Lord wants us to, to be normalized or <laughs> wants everything to be normalized for us. When I was growing up, I didn't have anybody tell me that the book of Acts wasn't normal. And I think I shared this in the first interview, talking about how to me, when I read the book of Acts, I thought it was normal to see the Lord, like Paul saw him in Acts 9, Acts 18, Acts 22, I think it was, or 23, where he was, said he was in a trance and he saw the Lord, or for Cornelius to see an angel, or, you know, I just thought all that was normal, raising people from the dead, you know, signs and wonders, the whole bit. And so that's how I that's how I grew up. And so my heart was Psalm 103.7. And Psalm 103.7 says, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts, A-C-T-S, his acts to the children of Israel. The children of Israel saw the quail, the manna, the water from a rock. They saw those things, the poison water turned uh, sweet water so that they could drink it. My heart has never been to see the miracles. I, I, I've seen so many Christians who live in that realm of, I need a miracle, I need a miracle. My heart from a teen was to know his ways. So part of the call on my life is to share the ways of God, which cause us to, to, to say, okay, this is normal Christianity. You know, Isaiah 55, you know, you start reading there in verse six or so, and it talks about, let the, for, for, uh, let the wicked man forsake his ways. And the evil forsake his thoughts. For my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. My ways are higher. When you forsake something, you leave. And so Isaiah 55 is an invitation to come up to God's higher ways and thoughts. When he says, let the evil forsake, that is, you leave your ways and thoughts. He says, my, and, and return to the Lord, for my ways are higher, my thoughts are higher. So it's that transition happening. And so part of the my heart and my call, my purpose that. He told me, you know, when I was a teenager that I was called to be a seer and to teach me about how to be sensitive to the things of the spirit and everything else is to, as you use the term, I, I always say normalize, but that is an accurate term, Jennifer, what you said. It's to normalize the things of the spirit. Christianity ha has to be more than a philosophy. It has to be more than a set of moral standards. If it's not supernatural, it's not Christianity, because Christianity is founded upon a supernatural act of Jesus being raised from the dead. And then the signs and the wonders are there to confirm that, that he was in fact raised from the dead, that he is in fact Lord and Savior. And so we've been raised, so many have been raised in an auditorium setting where the gifts of the Spirit either don't flow or maybe you might get one prophecy from sister so-and-so who's been authorized by the pastor because she's filled out an application to be approved to step up to the speaker if he will allow her once, you know, a service. Instead of the way they met was in homes and people were moved of the Spirit to speak, and it's very dynamic. That's what we see in our house church network around the world today. We see a very living, dynamic, powerful 
um, supernatural move of God first in our hearts because Christianity, it has to be, I'm going to say it this way, miracles have to become normal. Words of knowledge, words of wisdom, getting prayers answered, that is normal Christianity. And so that's part of, of what I'm talking about is to normalize, to cause everybody to rise up in their thinking saying, you know what, it's not unusual for me to see God moving in my life. It's unusual not to see him. And I remember when I was a teenager, I remember standing distinctly, it was my senior year in high school, standing in my in my bedroom and saying, and, and recognizing this and saying, Father, everything around me that I see that's called Christian is abnormal Christianity. None of it looks like the book of Acts. It's all abnormal Christianity. And I said, my heart is normal Christianity. And it was only in the little prayer meetings on Thursday, as a teenager, Barb and I, when we were dating, we'd go to a Thursday night, a Saturday night, and a Sunday night prayer meetings. Uh, the Saturday night had adults there. It was at a farmhouse and uh, out in the country. And those were normal. That's where we saw miracles. That's where, you know, I saw a German shepherd that had been cow kicked. It had been kicked and it had its canine tooth dangling by a thread. And we laid hands on that that gold, that that German shepherd. And when we took our hands off, that tooth was seated back up in the gum and the dog was totally healed. It ran out the door to uh, resume whatever it was doing. You know, we saw miracles. And so we have to, we have to elevate ourselves to think this is normal Christianity. And for me, it was like just reading through the book of Acts and saying, okay, this is normal. This is normal. You know, what Jesus said, lay hands on the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, see angels, everything we saw in the book of Acts, normal Christianity. And I wanted to separate myself from abnormal Christianity. That's been my heart ever since. It's got to have supernatural. It's got to have good teaching, but it's got to be anointed by the Spirit. And it's got to have power in our lives. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians, what is it, 5, 24 or something, 14. He said, he said, he said, I came to you not speaking in the wisdom of men so that your faith is not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This makes me think of, well, honestly, I adore what you just said, because this is what I felt for so many years, but have never been able to articulate it the way that you have. How you mentioned that what we're seeing today, as I would say for the Western world, is what we're seeing now in the Christian faith is not normal Christianity. Everything is very mundane or very safe, so to say. Um, so thank you for saying it that way, how what we're seeing right now is not normal. It's not normal just to sit in pews on Sunday and do nothing for the rest of the week. It's not normal to see sick people and not pray for them. It's not, it's not normal to be outside of the supernatural when God calls you to be in a supernatural. So what do you say to the Christians who don't believe in the supernatural? What would you say to those? Cause there are a lot who are, very religious, um, who haven't surrendered their full mind to Jesus Christ yet. What would you say to those Christians who are saying, well, I don't really believe in the supernatural, so? Okay, well, in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5 is the verse I was looking for, where Paul said, I want your, your faith not to stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then later he said, the, the kingdom of heaven is not in words, but in, in the power of the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit. So what I would say to them is this, the, the first evidence of Jesus being raised from the dead, the first evidence of something supernatural is first in your heart. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 17 through 23, 
Paul says this, he says, he says, I bow my knees to the father, or I ask the father that he would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that the eyes of your understanding can be opened, enlightened to know the invitation of the calling he has in you and the power that is towards us through Christ. And he goes on to say, it is that same power that he works in us that he used when he raised Jesus from the dead. So the first evidence in our lives, when, when we see an answered prayer, when we see the Lord changing us on the inside, it's like, why am I loving this person and forgiving them when, man, that's not me because <laughs> I want to, you know, off with their head, that sort of thing. And God's dealing with you. That is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the resurrection of the power of God. So a person who says, well, I don't believe in the power of God. I don't believe in the healings and, and all of that. So, okay, don't worry about that. Look into your own heart and say, has the power of God changed me? Is my life different now for knowing God than not knowing him? Where would I be if I didn't know him? Would I be in jail? Would I be six foot under? Would, would I, you know, what? where would I be right now? Would I be a self-centered, narcissistic, corporate climbing, you know, professional? Uh, where would I be? So first, to answer the question is you look for the supernatural work in your heart, in your midst, and because it flows out from there, the 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 living word, the person of the word is first in our hearts and then flowing outward from there. So don't you don't have to look for for healings. That's most of them don't happen. Most of them aren't like that anyway. But what happens is what we found, Jennifer, in our house church network is when we're sitting there and you've got, you know, the same kind of group of people that you're sitting with uh, week to week, uh, you know, across the living room from each other, you're hearing of answered prayer, you're hearing of grace, you're hearing of, of peace that comes on a person. Look for those little miracles, because those are things that an unbeliever does not have. So you look for what is God doing in my heart? How has he changed me? And then looking at those that you know, around you who know the Lord, and say, what is he doing in their lives? There's the evidence of the, of the supernatural. There's the evidence that your faith is more than a philosophy, that it's living and active and, and sharper than any two-edged sword and dividing it between soul and spirit and getting down on the inside of you and changing. So that's how I'd answer that one. That's yeah. good. Now let's talk about what you mentioned also, how the Lord has taught you, Jesus taught you while you were on the road in Mexico yeah. to be sensitive to the spirit and the way you describe it teaches us how to be sensitive to the spiritual and the spirit as well. Could you educate us on that? <laughs> well, I, I'm just sharing, you know, what happened to me there, uh, but it changed my life. So after that, with Maria and my friend and explaining that all things were made by him and for him, everything has to work right. It has to be in him. He said, he reiterated, he said, I'm going to teach you how the father communicates. And he then he he disappeared, and I was in the natural. I I was right there in Laguna de Sanchez. I was there in that little gravel road. Carl and Dora had lost track of them. They had gone up the the path. the The homes were up there and and through the trees and and everything. And I'm I'm standing there and I look around the valley. They had a it's a beautiful setting, you know, with a, a little valley and they had an aqueduct system from an artesian well that flowed down into the what was a dry lake bed and that's where they irrigated their crops. And I was taking it all in and then I thought, okay, what do I do with this? And I and I turn around and suddenly without warning, he's standing there again, just to my right, maybe 10 or 15 feet away. And I had I had felt first that that sense again of him there. And then I looked and he was kind of fuzzy 
you know, in appearance. And then the more I looked at him, as I continued to look at him, it became clearer and clearer and clearer. And he was just there. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, well, I said, I be, oh, by the way, I'm looking at him. I'm still looking at the natural. So it's now he's just there. You know, my eyes are wide open. So I see natural realm and spirit realm. Jennifer, it's kind of like having a parallel universe. It's kind of like two universes that coexist uh, equally between themselves. When my eyes are open to his realm or I see my angels or something like that, I see both realms at once, uh, usually. And so that's what was happening. I was standing there on the road and there he is just to my right. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, well, I felt uh, like your presence on the inside of me. And so I started searching for where you were. And I said, you're, I said, I felt uh, where you were standing was more dense, more concentrated. It was weightier. It was heavier in over in this area. And so I, I kind of gave myself to it and get, paid attention. And then that's where I first saw you. And then you became clear as I, as I gave, as I continued looking at you, he said, exactly. He said, now, how do you receive when you, when you uh, give a prophecy, how do you first notice that and what happens? And I said, well, you know, I was thinking back when, you know, praying for people, it's like I'm, my eyes are closed. That's what he asked me. He said, are your eyes open or open or closed? I said, oh, well, my eyes are closed. I'm praying for a person. And as I'm praying, I sense something down on the inside of me, like the first few words of something or some, I'll say maybe a little picture. And he said, why do you close your eyes? And I said, well, I guess I, I do it because I need to concentrate. I need to focus on what's happening in my spirit. So it helps me if I close out the natural world, the natural senses. And he said, exactly. Exactly. And he said, that's what happened when you saw me. I said, you were focused on what was happening in your spirit. And so you were able to ignore the natural to look. And, and then you, you saw me. Your eyes were open to my realm. And he said that. And I said, Lord, I, do you have you know chapter and verse on that? And he refer, referred me to um, Luke, and it's it's the, what is it, 16, 19 through 31 in Luke, just to, to double check there. So when he referred to that in Luke 16, 19 through 31, it's a story of a rich man who is unnamed, and then a beggar named Lazarus who's laid at his feet, excuse me, laid at his gate. And the beggar hopes to receive crumbs or something from the rich man as he goes off to his day. And he says, and the Lord said, the dogs came and licked this beggar named Lazarus's source. And so you've got to understand in Jewish culture, it was mandatory. Hospitality was like mandatory. It's part of righteousness to take care of, of somebody. If they, if they came and sat at your gate and they needed help, they, it was your responsibility to help them and take care of them. So that's the way Lazarus was right there. And the man ignored him. So Jesus said in the process of time, Luke 16, 19 through 31, in the process of time, both men died and the, the rich man was in hell and wanted water because uh, he, he was thirsty because of the heat, he said. And he looked across and he saw in paradise, he saw Abraham and the beggar named Lazarus. And the Lord explained to me, he said, he said now both men's bodies were buried on the earth. But he said, notice they saw one another, they heard one another. The one talked of, of needing water, so he had he had taste and touch, 
because of the heat. Uh, so he said, your five physical senses, he said, they retain their, their physical senses, or they retain their senses. He said, you've been taught that your five physical senses are all there is. He said, but the root of your five physical senses is actually in your spirit man. And he said, that's why your mind is the middle point of a teeter-totter with your body on one end and your spirit man on the other, and your soul is in the middle. And he said, you have to train yourself to know what's happening in your spirit man and your spirit man's senses. He said, this is how people can hear angels sing, or they smell death, or they smell the aroma of my garments. He said, because it's not their physical senses, it is their spirit man's senses. And he repeated, again, the root of your physical senses is in your spirit man. And he said, you need to become good at paying attention to both realms, both senses, you know, and, and that's exactly what happened. The, the beggar and the, and, and uh, the rich man, they saw one another, they heard one another. He, he could taste and touch the water. They felt, he felt the heat, uh, taste, touch, sight, smell, hearing. It was all there. And though their bodies were dead on the earth, that opened my eyes, Jennifer, that pinpoint teaching that my spirit man's senses are actually the root of my, this body's going to pass away and my physical senses will pass with it. But my, by my real, my real man, my spirit man, that senses that operates in the spirit realm, that is retained spirit and soul. I'll go to heaven and wait for the redemption of the body, you know, wait for my glorified body, but, but I can still function in that realm. So, so when the Lord is standing there teaching me this, and he's talking about your spiritual senses, and he he referred to at the time when we lived we lived in uh, when we lived in Boulder, Colorado. There's a, a mall in downtown Boulder called the Pearl Street Mall, or just the Boulder Mall, um, and it's a pedestrian mall. And there was a time where Barb and I went into a shop there, and when we walked in, there was just a funny feeling to it, kind of a sweet, uh, but deceptive feeling to it in our spirit. And we noticed it. We walk in and the atmosphere of the store was such. And it was only then after our mind picked up on, on that sense, that feeling in our spirit, it was only then that we looked around and we noticed Buddhism symbols all over with Buddha and different stuff like that. And that's the first time I, I really realized that the spirit behind Buddhism is like a, it's like a, it's almost like marijuana. It's a sick, it's a sickening, sweet, smell that is is kind of a deceptive thing in its sweetness it's it's you know it and, and so anyway each spirit has a different thing that's a little rabbit trail here that's why let's say it this way if a person has been abused when they were raised up or if they grew up in like an alcoholics family and then years later they come to the lord they get delivered from all that and everything else but they, they have a knack or picking out if they were like sexual abuse, they can tell a, a man or a woman, a person with a spirit of lust. They can tell if they grew up in a family of an alcoholic, they can tell if somebody's an addict or an alcoholic just by looking at them because the Holy Spirit in them will bear witness. They'll sense that same spirit. So they will just know their mind won't know, but they'll have this inner knowing. And that's their spirit man senses because they are familiar with the spirit of involved in alcoholism, or they're familiar with the spirits of lust and sexual immorality, their mind will pick up on, on they just have the heebie-jeebies, they just don't feel right about a person, and if they will pinpoint it, they'll say, that's the same feeling as, you know, the perpetrator had, that's the same feeling that, you know, my parents had when they were alcoholics, or whatever the case is, and so, 
we do this all the time without, but that teaching just changed my life. We, we may look at a person and, and they'll say one word and they'll say, wow. And we just know inside they are caught up in strife. Man, they had an argument before they got here and it just darkens the whole atmosphere of the room. And it's something that your mind picks up in your spirit and you just know that's a spirit of strife. How do I know that? Because I've been in the spirit of strife. <laughs> and so, and so that awareness, that was a, that was a major part of it right there. And, and what the Lord continued to do just for time's sake, he would teach me a little bit, then he disappeared and I'd walk about 10 or 15 feet furthermore. And then he reappeared on my left side. And he teach me a little more about this. And I said, you know, chapter and verse, please. And he referred to, to Mark 2.8. And in Mark 2.8, there was a, a lame man who was let down through the roof while Jesus was there. And there were scribes there, and Pharisees there, uh, the rulers there in front of him. And this man gets let down through the roof. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And then it, the text says, and, and the King James Version, the text says, uh, when G excuse me, the text says that the scribes were thinking, who does this man think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And then verse 8 says, says this, it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he said to them, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or, or rise and be healed? But so that you can know that I've got the authority to do both he looked to the man and said, take up your bed and walk. What Jesus pointed out in this visitation was, he said, the father didn't tell me this. He said, I perceived in my spirit what they were thinking. He said, I was not reading their minds. He said, their body language drew my attention to them. But then I checked in my spirit and I perceived what they were thinking. And I said, do you have another example? And he, he, he looked at, and he referred to uh, Paul in Acts chapter 14 in verses eight and nine. And he said, Paul was speaking to them and there was a man in Lystra who was born crippled. And it said, and, and he's, he's narrating this to me. He says, he said, Paul was teaching and looking around. And he said, you'll notice it says when Paul steadfastly beheld him, he perceived the man had faith to be healed. He said, Paul had to stare at him. Paul was looking at everyone as he was teaching but he zeroed in and focused on that man because he perceived in his spirit the man had faith to be healed. And he said, you need to learn to do that. And he said, and then he referred to Luke 8.46. Actually, he referred to Luke 8.46 first, but Luke 8.46, he said, when I was in the crowd, and this was an interesting thing, Jennifer, he said, when I was in the crowd on the way to Jairus's house, he said, he said, the woman with the hemorrhaging issue, came and touched the hem of my garment. And he said, and I said, who touched me? I perceive power has gone out from me. He said, my senses were all going off. All the physical senses were firing. He says, but I had the presence of mind to pay attention to what was happening in my spirit. And I perceived healing power had gone from me. And he said this, he said, he said, the and this is important. He said the Bible, and again, because I use the King James mostly because all the reference books and study books and commentaries are older and usually use the King James or the or the revised version. So he's in, in that context, knowing that I I study from the King James version, he said this. He said, the Bible uses terms like perceive, discern, and witness to describe the process by which the mind picks up what is going on in your spirit. 
I'll say it again because it was a, a great quote. Again, changed my life. He said the Bible uses words like perceive, uses perceive, dis, witness, and discern to describe the process by which your mind picks up on what is in your spirit. And he said, you have to learn to live like this. And we do this, Jennifer. We do this all the time. How many people, the, the world calls it premonition. I mean, the Father God in his great goodness has, you know, he can deal with people for years and he can give people what is called premonition or in the world, you know, follow your gut. You know, your mind says this, but what does your gut say? Why do you have such a bad feeling about going on this trip? Um, you know, why is there a happy feeling of something good is about to happen? Even if you're unsaved, the father in the attempt to draw us to himself, you know, John 6, 44, Jesus said in John 6, 44, no one comes to, to me except the father first draws him. So the father is, is communicating to us in our spirit, trying to be helpful and, and gracious because he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So he, he tries he, he, to the extent that he's allowed, he will be good to everybody. So somebody may have a premonition, they may have a hunch, they may have something going on and it's in their spirit. Their mind becomes aware of what's going on in their spirit realm. And that we do. We're in a store and we see somebody, like I said, you know, a person in strife shows up at your Bible study or or at church, you know, and you can say, oh, man, they've wrong spirit about them this morning. Or you're in a store and you see somebody and they've got a little black cloud hovering over them. And you can say, man, that person is depressed. You, you don't know why, but you walk by them. And there's just this darkness. There's just heaviness on them. And, and so we do this all the time. This is very, but we don't realize what we're doing. And the Lord in this teaching brought it home to me and made it so real and by his appearing and disappearing and the whole thing lasts about 40 minutes so this was a like a 40 minute teaching well you know but, i have a question for you so do you feel like um your spirit or do you feel like your spirit knows because we're spirit beings because obviously we have a body but we are a spirit so do you feel like our spirit knows these things because our spirit is seeing other spiritual things and it's alerting us right because you know like jesus said in john chapter 4 you know in, in the exchange with the woman at the well you know in 20 through 24 especially verses 23 and 24 he, he said he said he told her he said he said the time is coming and now is when you won't ask do we go to this mountain to worship or that mountain to worship because god is a spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth in other words, so Jesus is saying it's not the location, it's your spirit man, it's your heart. So because God the Father is a spirit, he communicates first and foremost to our spirit man. So there are times, and, and this, you brought up a good point. There are times maybe, you know, every one of us as a Christian, we may get up in the morning and there is a rejoicing. There's a song come, coming up out of our spirit. And our mind doesn't have any clue what's going on. It's just another day. But the, the for some reason, there's a rejoicing, like a spiritual battle has been won or something good is coming our way. And so our spirit man often knows things before our natural man knows them, uh, before our, as time plays out, before we walk into, you know, that situation or that good thing that's happening. Um, and so... Uh, you know, and, and that happens to your spirit, man. It's like you could be scanning the, the help wanted ads, you know, and you just have a, a leap in your spirit about that job is for you. And so you respond and apply. And it's like on the inside, you're saying, I've already got the job. Everybody else can go home. 
you know, I mean, it could be an online application. You haven't walked through the door, whatever the case is. You have this assurance. You have this knowledge. You have this peace. Your mind doesn't know anything. Your mind hasn't even been invited to an interview yet. But in your spirit, you, you just have this settling peace. It's like, this is where I'm going to work. And that's an example. Your spirit man knows ahead of time. And then you you walk through the process. Uh, that actually happened with me one time uh, in a job. And I was told they 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 uh, received 60 applications. They interviewed three people. They hired me. I knew before it ever happened that I had the job. But I couldn't act like an arrogant, you know, person walking in there like, hey, I know I've already got this job. No, no, no. You go in there, you keep that, you retain that, you walk in wisdom and humility, and you you retain that and let it be proved out that it was so. Let it be proved out that you heard accurately. And But that's actually happened to me and, and so many others, where your spirit man knows ahead of time, or you have it revealed to you ahead of time, and then you walk it out. Well, continuing on spirit knowing ahead of time, I have a very close friend, and she was a Jehovah's Witness. Matter of fact, I interviewed her about a year and a half ago. So if anyone's watching, you can see it. She's the one who had um, a child who doctors mentioned that he wouldn't survive or he would have a whole lot of health issues and he survived, but she was a Jehovah's witness. And she always mentions to me that she can always tell when a person is Jehovah's witness. And I asked her, how can you tell? She said, all I have to do is just listen to them speak. It doesn't even have to be about the religion or the cult, whatever they want to call it. All they have to do is speak and then she just knows automatically. Or even if they walk into her presence and they just stand there for some reason, she can feel that they're Jehovah's Witness and 10 times out of 10, she's always right. So John, what you're saying, it, it actually pairs with what my friend um, had always said, how she just knows there's something about Jehovah's Witness that she could tell because her spirit, her spirit knows. Now, you also mentioned to me how when a person's in a, say, when they're having coffee or something like, or you're having coffee and then you think about your friend who you haven't heard from in years, what is that? Because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm just thinking about my friend. I haven't thought about her in a long time. But you say it's not just a thought. What is it? A little, again, foundational here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, Paul says, there are differences of gifts, but it's the same spirit. And that word gift is charis, where we get gift or grace or the charismatic gifts. So he mentions the charismatic gifts. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 4. In verse 5, he says there are also serving gifts. And those serving gifts are, are what we would call ministry gifts. You know, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, helps, uh, governments, things of that nature that Paul mentions. And he says it's the same spirit. And then in verse uh, six, he says, uh, he says, there are also differences of energies, that is motivational gifts that he covers more in Romans chapter 12, things like organizing, things like giving, things like mercy and hospitality, uh, things like storytelling or, or, or where a person is just gifted with and feels better. They're an exhorter, the King James Version calls it. They, they encourage, they're an encourager. And he says, these are gifts. These are things that energize us or motivate us. So he, he mentions charismatic gifts, ministry gifts, and energy gifts, things that motivate us. And he says in verse seven, he sums it all up. And he says, but all these things are, are just a manifestation of the Holy Spirit given to everybody to be profited, to be profited. In other words, for our own good. So because of that, Jennifer, we have to get rid of the auditorium thinking that the gifts of the Spirit have a particular time, you know, when everybody's worshiping and the, the volume's 
trails down and then you know it's going to be a tongue and interpretation or prophecy or whatever and then you know outside the four walls the gifts don't exist you have to get rid of that and realize that the lord does not announce incoming here is a word of knowledge you know it doesn't flow like that because god the father's a spirit we're a spirit so in our spirit man almost floating up from our spirit man you may be going about your day and here's your friend that you haven't heard from or seen in a long time and maybe for a week solid just every now and then where when your mind sort of shifts into neutral their their name just kind of comes across your mind and you think oh, i wonder what's up with them I haven't thought about them in ages what's going on and then maybe a week or two later you just happen quote unquote happen to get an email from them or a text message or you just think i'm going to follow up and just touch base with them and that you you find out back then when they were on your mind that they were going through a very hard time and they really needed prayer when it first happened to me i had that happen with somebody and i found out and they said oh and i said yeah you've been really on my heart you know a couple of weeks ago what was going on said, oh thank you for praying for me because i was going through such a hard time and in my mind i felt so guilty because i hadn't prayed for them they were just on my mind you know i'm going like father can you make this kind of a retroactive uh prayer i pray for them right now from two weeks ago that they're going that they're doing good you know and and so i learned that was what we would classify as a word of knowledge i realized that paul said these are manifestations of the spirit in first corinthians 12 7 charismatic gifts serving gift like apostle prophet pastor etc and also the energy gifts the thing that mo motivate us and move us and he says these are just the holy spirit and so i began to understand that the the apostle is equal to the prophecy which is equal to the lady giving the casserole to their friend out of mercy and hospitality all are moved by the spirit it's just a manifestation of spirit just different functions not one higher than the other um and so when you realize that that friend that is a word of knowledge that that friend is going through a tough time and so in the future as the lord teaches us and he does teach us uh, Hebrews 5.14 is my favorite verse along these lines, one of the things that the Lord showed me at this time. Hebrews 5.14 says that strong meat is for those who by reason of use have trained their senses to discern between good and evil, by reason of use, which means it's trial and error. So the next time when I had a friend just cross my mind, just I took that as that is the Holy Spirit's suggestion. Because the Father is a spirit, he's communicating to my spirit. It's come floating up out of my mind, especially when my mind's in neutral or not, you know, active with other things, because the Lord is such a gentleman, he's usually not going to interrupt us. Well, sometimes he does. But, you know, when the mind's in neutral, and it's like that friend's name just comes across my mind, the next time I'm going to grab hold of that, and I'm going to say, Father, I lift them up. And I take it as a word of knowledge. And so it's the same thing. You're, stand, you're, you're sitting there having coffee with somebody. And they're just sharing, you know, you're sitting in a coffee shop or whatever, and, and they're just sharing about their rough week. And suddenly you have this peace about it. You just have this peace. And you know that you know that what needs to get done on Friday that your friend is so stressed about will get done. God will show up and, it, and it's going to be okay. And you have this, it just sinks on the inside of you. And you just say to them, hey, I just have it, you know, in my spirit. I just really sense a peace about this and that it's all going to work out. By the end of the week, it's all going to be wrapped up. Well, you just had a word of wisdom. Uh, uh, you know, a course of action for her to take, to rest, to be at peace, or for him to rest and be at peace. That that word of wisdom is about, you know, an action to take in the future, or a word of knowledge about the situation. And so afterwards, you sit there and say, oh, that was a, maybe I'll label this all for label's sake, for my understanding's sake, it's a word of knowledge. 
But the labels are just so that we can help understand understand what the Holy Spirit is doing. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, these are just manifestations of the Spirit. This is just normal Christianity. This is the way of life. But you're not going to get in neon signs, okay, incoming word of wisdom or incoming, here's a prophecy. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, prophecy is nothing more than an inspired word for edifying, exhorting, or incur or comfort. You know, there's nothing future about that in a simple gift of prophecy. And so there are many, many times where we've been inspired, even when praying for people, maybe in one of our house church meetings or a prayer meeting or or just praying for somebody, and you just have this, this encouragement just drop in on you and you feel that they need to be encouraged and you share that with them. Fine, you just moved in prophecy. It doesn't have to use King James English, thus saith the Lord, thouest, mayest, goest in peace, eth. You know, like that, it just comes from your personality as Christ in you and just saying, man, I've got a peace about this. And and the Lord just wants you to know that you need to be encouraged, that he loves you and it's all going to work out and you need to be at peace. Boom, you just prophesied. And so, so people have to understand that moving from the spirit is not as mystical and not as special as we've made it out to be because we've been herded into a building and, you know, all our time is is very carefully categorized the the word the, you know most of jesus's miracles were outside and most of jesus's miracles were in the marketplace most of jesus's miracles were when he was having a meal you know and and, and once you realize that then it's like wow i don't have to look for this i i've got I, I i've got a friend i've got other people who have who have said to me you know they they work with their hands you know um, and, and the Lord will give them words of knowledge and words of wisdom about how to fix this or how to fix that or how to solve that problem. You know, everything from mechanics to engineers to to, to people working on an assembly line and, and in a machine shop and stuff like that. And they'll say, well, God doesn't prophesy. God doesn't use me in prophecy. God doesn't, you know, I don't hear from him. And then you talk to them in their workplace and, and they're getting all kinds of words of wisdom about how to fix that. And this piece goes with that and do this. And they have no idea they're moving in the gifts of the spirit and words of wisdom. The world calls it intuition. The world calls it maybe wisdom. They don't realize that it's often an inspired word an inspired a knowledge from above that's deposited in our spirit. This is how you solve that problem. And you move with it and you just moved in one of the gifts of the spirit. The labeling is not important. What is important is God, the father, who's the spirit, put it in your spirit. Your mind picked up on it, allowed it to flow out and you put it to use in the natural world. So going back to earlier, how do you become good in both senses? Hebrews 5.14, by reason of use, it's got to be a lifestyle. You'll find, at least for me, I'm more sensitive when I pray in the spirit. I will most often turn, if I'm driving, Every let me put it this way. Everybody has a has a place where the Lord seems to speak to them or show them things better than at other times. For one, it might be a hot bath. For another, it may be working in the garden. For another, it may be driving a car. Uh, for another, it may be just sitting back in the recliner with the eyes shut and some quiet, you know, worship music going on. Everyone's built differently. And so everyone will is created differently. And so we'll meet the Lord as it pertains to them. In John chapter 15, verse seven, the Lord says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, and it'll be done of my father who's in heaven. We have been trained because it doesn't come across in the English. We've been trained to say, if I just know enough of the Bible, I will be sensitive eventually at some point to hear God's voice. 
Okay. I mean, that's how it's trained. But there's two Greek words uh, that concern us with this. The first one is logos or logos, L-O-G-O-S. That is the general word of God. That's the counsel of God. That is Jesus is described as the word made flesh. He's the whole counsel of God, the logos, the Genesis through Revelation made flesh. Out of the logos, out of the person of Jesus, out of that comes a specific word to you and to me. That specific word is called rhema, R-H-E-M-A. It's always used for when God talks to a person, okay? What Jesus used there is this. If my words abide in you, we've been trained to think that is talking about the logos. If I just do scripture memory verses, if I just know enough of the Bible, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if my words, that is my rhemas, that means if the words that I spoke directly to you abide in you, then you can ask what you will according to that specific word, and it will be done for you. An example in scripture would be Noah being told a specific word, a rhema word, build a boat, I'm going to flood the earth. So Noah, according to that rhema word, could then ask anything that he wanted as it pertained to that. Okay, Lord, I'm going to need enough wood. I'm going to need enough time. I'm going to need pitch. I need you to talk to the animals and get the ones that you want here. Uh, which wasn't every animal on earth. It was just the species head, the main ones. Uh, you know, he would need whatever he needed according to that rhema word, that specific word to him, then he could have it. That's what Jesus was saying in John 15, verses seven and eight. The way you do that is like when I read the Bible, I'm not reading just my two chapters to get it over with. And then I forget what I just read. I'm reading for a for my spirit man to have something leap out at me. I'm looking for something to pique my attention. I'm looking for something to a concept, a word, a phrase, something that says, boom, there's more here. There's life here. The father who's a spirit is in my spirit and he's trying to bring a specific word to me. So I'll read my Bible or I'll read somebody's book or I'll I'll watch a video, whatever the case is, and I'm, I'm looking for life, for something to jump out at me to arrest my attention. And once that happens, I stop. Because the Logos is not going to feed me. There are many people in hell who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, but they didn't know the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm looking for, if if he, in fact, uh, what is it, Deuteronomy 8.3, and it's requoted in Matthew 4.4, 4, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew's translation there, that word is rhema. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that God speaks to me. That's how I live. In other words, I live for that. Equal to my breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I want God showing me something. And that can come through revelation. It can come through something I perceive, something I discern. It can be, you know, where something jumps out at me, but I will, I will look at that phrase. I'll look at that verse and I'll just stop. And I will feed on that. That is my nutrition. It's equal to my bread. So I want to get every bit of nutrition out of it the same way I want to get every bit of nutrition out of a meal. And so there are times I might not open the Bible for two months or three months other than to, to track down every nuance about that particular verse that jumped out at me. You understand what I'm saying? So that's, so it's the same thing in Romans 10, 17. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and the word used there is not logos. It's rhema, that faith comes by rhema. Faith comes when God talks to you. That's why when he talked to Noah, faith came out of Noah to be able to build the boat. 
And it's the same with Abraham taking a walk and ending up in the promised land. Same with Moses being called to be the, the deliverer for Israel. They received a specific word and faith comes. Faith is the response to that grace. Faith is the response to that revelation. Faith is the response to that rhema word, that specific word, that specific revelation, that specific leading, as we might say it. And so how you live it is that you are willing to take a chance. You're willing to step out in faith. Maybe you're in a prayer meeting and you're praying and you are, you've got your eyes closed because at this point you, you need to shut out the, the, the natural senses so that you can pay attention to your spirit man's senses and, and your eyes are closed and you can't, and you just kind of like in your, you just see this brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so over here and you just sense they are really you know, in knots about something coming up and you sense that and you, and, and you feel like the Lord is telling you or showing you that it's going to be okay. And that you have a word for them and the fear rises up. Do I do this? Do I share with them? Do I not? The way you live by it is you take a chance. You step out in that. And certainly house church, small group, family, prayer meeting, that's a safe place to try. That's a safe place to learn, you know, because you're among friends but you live like that, Jennifer. You train your senses to discern between good and evil. That's good. Okay, so let's move over to the time when you got to speak and converse with your guardian angel. And you asked your guardian angel about the fall of Lucifer. What happened? What did that look like? This was early on in in the Lord's, in the visitation. It's, it's humbling. I, I don't know what to say, you know, other than he continues to appear to me usually a few times a year. I usually talk more about what he's doing in the body of Christ and instructions than than anything, but he often includes things about world events. But and one of the reasons for that is because I'm not, I don't want to say it's scary, but but like I, I said in the first interview, you know, it's it's uh once you see the Lord, you become accountable for more. And so I, I wouldn't change a thing, and yet at the same time, I'm very much aware that he's God and I'm not. And when you truly see the Lord, the the awesomeness of the Lord is amazing. So it's nothing to get lifted up with or prideful or, you know, try to sell a bunch of books or anything about, about this or that or the other thing. It's just part of normal Christianity for me. So early on during the visitation, there was a time with the one I call my angel, one who's been assigned. And it appears that we are assigned angels at children. That's a Jewish uh, belief, or at least part of the commentary. It's seen in the gospels, and the children's angels always behold the face of the father, Jesus said. There's no sign that teenage years scare them away. Uh, you know, they're with us. And so I asked my angel a couple different things. And the whole conversation was first off of how do you, and I believe I shared this the first time. I may not have, but because it goes in, in order. I said, how do you feel about me being in charge of you in the age to come? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, no, you're not. We will judge the world. We'll judge angels. And that word judge doesn't mean heaven or hell. It means to administrate. It's a first century term, meaning you'll be administrator over angels in the age to come. And my angel looked at me and said, it is right. It is proper. Like, how could you ask such a thing? And I, I said, why? And he said, remember, we know him as creator, but you know him as savior. You know, it's right. It's proper. So then I said, so so then what was it like when Lucifer, I said, if I could ask, I said, what was it like when Lucifer fell? And he he stopped for a minute and then he, he to to think a minute, and then he said this. He said, he said, if you can receive this, imagine a time when only your father's 
life and light and goodness filled the universe. Now, I don't know if that was if there was a creation. I don't know if the galaxies existed then or not. He just told me, imagine a time when only your father's goodness, his light, his life filled the universe. There wasn't anything else. So I had to adjust my thinking to think, okay, no stars, no planets, maybe, or maybe they were here, but he hadn't started the rest of creation. You know, I didn't know. I just know it was just light, just all over light, God's light, God's love. And he said, when Lucifer rebelled, your father was gracious and tried to find a place for him, but there was no place to be found. And I said, I need chapter and verse on that. And he said, you've read Revelation 12, 8, where it says there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and there was found no place for him in heaven. And he said also Matthew 25, 41, which you, which, uh, in which the Lord says that a place had to be prepared for the devil and his angels. I said, okay. So then I, so he's saying, so your father tried to find a place for him, but no place could be found because Lucifer rejected everything that is God. And so he said, your father was gracious enough to give him a place, to prepare a place for him, to give him what he wants, and not only him, but for all others who reject the things of your father. And he said, that's why it's called a kingdom of darkness, because he is king over his realm of darkness that rejected everything that belongs to your father. So from our perspective, your father has been gracious and very kind to allow that and to prepare a place for him and his angels and for all who reject him. I just just blew my mind. I had never seen their perspective before. You know, I'll share this, Jennifer, and I didn't share this earlier. I, I shared it recently in one of our Zoom online meetings that we had, and I've shared it in my monthly newsletter that comes out by email. And, and maybe I'll just insert here, if anybody's listening and, and you want to go to our website, cwowi.org, uh, sign up for my weekly thoughts and my monthly e-newsletter, follow the instructions on that. It's a I do a weekly teaching every Friday by email and uh, also do a weekly YouTube teaching, seven to 14 minutes long. You can look me up there as well um, under either Super House Church, one word, or just John Finn weekly teaching. So, um, but anyway, something happened to me just recently and we didn't talk about this. Um, but my wife had a, a knee replacement surgery. She had worked down on both knees. And it had been about three weeks since we brought our handicapped son, Chris, home from the uh, from his group home to have him home because of my wife's surgery. And so he was, you know, like I said earlier, Chris is about four years old, five years old mentally. And so he was so happy to be home. And this sat and Saturday morning, a couple Saturdays ago, we were seated in our in our sofa and the sofa has reclining you know, reclining foot rest things. And, and so we were sitting there and Chris loves Formula One race cars. And so we were sitting there, we were just enjoying one another on Saturday morning. I'd fix breakfast and just sitting in the recliner and he's talking and, you know, and, and all of that. And suddenly my angel was standing there about 10 feet away. And I see him just like I see anybody else, but I see both realms like a parallel universe. And he had a message from the father for me about some things coming up in, in Barb and I in, in our lives. And then he just stood there and he was smiling. And it was enough that it's like Chris and I are talking, we're watching the recorded race that I had on there. But finally, I looked at my angel and said, may I help you with something? Why are you standing here just smiling at us, just looking at us? 
And he said, I'm enjoying family. He said, he said, he said, we don't have family like this in heaven. He said, I don't have a father and mother like you do. We were created specifically by the father to serve him. And it's his interests and him we serve. So I learned from family. I learned from, from earthly family. Family was given by your father to mankind. And that perspective too, one of the biggest things about my life to see is the is heavenly perspective and that perspective from the angels that, you know, we have something unique in family as, as imperfect as it, as they are. And, you know, sometimes we think we've got in-laws and outlaws, you know, and, and you can pick and choose your friends, but you got to love your family and all of that. But it's still something that they, they, they look into it. They, they see it because they're not part of it. They don't know what it's like. And they, they look at our family dynamic and everything. And it, it's instructive to them. It's, it's like that one of the times I was, I was ministering at a church of about 50 or 60 people. And while I was teaching, there were about 50 or 60 angels in the aisles, up and down the main aisle, and then on the sides and around at least as many angels as there were people in the pews. And there came a, a point during the, the worship and things were closing down. I said, why are you guys standing around listening to me? And, and he said, we learn. We learn from your perspective. We learn from uh, of the mysteries of your salvation. You know, it, it, was, it was later that I read in Ephesians chapter 3, you know, verses 3 through 11, and where it really hit home, where Paul talks about the mystery that was kept secret from ages and generations, but it's now it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. And, and it was God's wisdom that is now revealed to the principalities and powers through the church with Jesus Christ. That is that, that when, when our lives, when, when we get answered prayer, we walk with the Lord, our struggles, all those different things, we are proving God's wisdom, his, his investment in our lives and his wisdom, wisdom and the angels see that demons see that see god the father's wisdom in in having christ in us and all that he did through jesus on the cross and his resurrection and and it reveals our lives actually reveal step by step the wisdom of god it's an amazing amazing thing so it was just that was just a couple of weeks ago with that angel when he when i had never in all these years you know of uh, different exchanges I, I i had never thought about the the essence of family. The Lord had said in a previous visitation uh, a couple of years ago about the importance. He said, the time is coming and now ends is when your faith will become precious to you. And then recently this spring, he talked about the importance of family that in the days ahead, it'll be the small groups, the house churches, et cetera. And our, our faith and our lives will be noted by the power of God and the family of God and how uh, holiness is coming back to the family of God, to the, to the body of Christ, that people are gradually cleaning up their lives and and zeroing in on what is important and and letting go of things that really aren't important they're more peripheral so but anyway that's another subject there so <laughs> and you even said that you have been given insight of behind the scene things that happens in the supernatural yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, you told me this. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly which direction you're going to. Some of the stuff that I'm talking about has to do with that. Um, well, heaven's I, perspective. Of heaven's perspective, mm -hmm. just different things. Again, heaven's perspective, angels' perspective. Okay, so I was I was praying. This is back when I was a pastor in an auditorium church. So this is some time ago. I mean, because we started our house church network uh, in January of uh, uh, 2002 or 2002. I get my zeros and two's mixed up. Uh, it's been 20 years as of this recording. But anyway, so I was praying 
And suddenly I was in the spirit and I saw the father's throne far off. And it was like up, like I, the, the roof of the church disappeared. There was no sky. I mean, I just saw the father on his throne way up there. And I saw the cherubs around the throne. And the cherubs are, are uh, multi-winged uh, angelic creatures that are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They're seen in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, uh, especially Revelation 4 around the father's throne and suddenly like a bolt of lightning just right in front of me and there stood a cherub and he's about five and a half feet tall they're not very big you know five five or so and i'm not a real real good because i'm so tall i'm not a real real good judge of of height and everything of shorter people <laughs> but he's definitely shorter than than like my guardian angel and, and others i've seen but but he came and and there was a, a a message there, you know, from the father, and I knew a little bit because I'd studied it and everything. I knew that um, that in Isaiah six they're called seraphs, which seraph is the Hebrew word meaning burning one, and I know that when they move because I've been in heaven, I've seen when they beat their wings it becomes a ball of fire, it just ignites and becomes a, a ball of fire. I showed that in our first interview, I believe. But here was this cherub there. And I said, what was that? I said, you came as a bolt of lightning. And I had a reference in my mind to Ezekiel chapter one. There was something about a reference about the cherubs that he saw come and go as a flash of lightning in the day of a storm, you know? And I said, what is that? And he looked at me and he said, he said, what is lightning on the earth? And I said, well, lightning uh, basically equalizes the charge between heaven and earth, whether it's a cloud to ground or ground to cloud it equalizes the difference the differences between heaven and earth and he said think of us as god's equalizers <laughs> and then he was gone he delivered the message then he was gone and the whole thing disappeared and it was like wow that you know because i pondered why does the father even need angels you know what is his purpose you know he's god but he he loves to create obviously and for whatever reason, he uses that realm to uh, to bring equalization, and it, so you know, all sorts of scriptures start going through my mind, like the Lord's Prayer. You know, your may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is this continual process of the Father wants His will to be done, but He's in in heaven where nobody opposes Him, and He wants it to be done on earth. And so there's this continual flow from heaven to earth until eventually his kingdom will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the globe. You know, his, his glory will fill the earth, but there's this flow, this equalizing going in. And that's like when, when a person is suffering and they are under attack, what are we looking for? We're looking for justice. We're looking for things to be equalized in our lives. One thing I did want to get at because millions of us have read the book of Acts and we know what happened in the upper room when Holy Spirit came and the Bible says in Acts 2 that there appeared tongues of fire over people's heads. Yeah. But you say that you sometimes see that. You sometimes see tongues of fire over people. What does it look like? Does it look like actual tongues? Does it look like mouths of fire? What? <laughs> Help us out with this vision okay. here. Um I'm going back. I'm going back now to early 1986 in my life. Okay. This is before 
uh, and during the time frame where the Lord appeared to me that first time in April of 1986, you know, with the Pueblo or the Navajo pastor, rather, in that time frame, I was an associate pastor of a church in uh, on the east side of or east side of Boulder, Colorado. And on Monday afternoons, I from one to three p.m. I held what I called healing school. And there would be 15 or 20 people that would gather every Monday afternoon, and I would be led uh, to take one passage or one incident in Jesus' life or the book of Acts and talk about healing and how the Lord positioned that person into a place to receive healing. Uh, much of it is in my series that I did so many years ago called Healing School, which people can find on our website. You know, I put that into to some of those things into a more formal teaching late, years later. But it was in that time frame of, of doing the Healing School that I would be teaching. And then as I was looking at a person, I would see over them uh, what, again, tongues of, of fire. Sometimes there was a shaft of light. Sometimes it was just like they were in light. But specifically for that, my eyes would be open. And you've got 15 people kind of in an oval or a circle sitting around. And I'm teaching. And I look at one person and over their head and, and hovering about six inches above their head was, if you imagine maybe a Valentine's heart turned upside down or, or, or an Aspen leaf or a cottonwood leaf. That's kind of heart shaped. Okay. So that's the general shape hovering about so far, six inches or so above a person's head. And it would be a massive flame. And then all over it were little flames, like in a fireplace going, you know, the way they pop up and disappear and move and everything else. So this whole thing is like a burning about 18 inches in total height. Uh, a burning flame with lots of little tongues of flame over it. And when I looked at that person, I'd look at that and then I'd look at that person and the Lord would just give me words of knowledge or words of wisdom or a prophecy or something like that. And so I would give that and then that flame would disappear and then there'd be somebody else sitting there. And, and we'd go through, I'd go through sometimes all 15 people, every single person. I would either see that or uh, sometimes when they go into a trance, I've seen this many different times and not just a, it doesn't have to be into a trance. A trance, by the way, is when your physical senses are suspended. You know, it would be like a shaft of light just coming down like a cylinder of light just coming down over their head and sometimes over their whole body, but usually over their head. And I would see words coming down that shaft of light and pouring into them. I'd see the father talking to him. I'd hear him by the spirit. And then I'd see those words. Uh, as just like written sentences going down into their spirit man. And they'd be sitting there just like, you know, receiving, just like suspended. And and when that light disappeared, then they'd be like, kind of wake up. And they and I said, do you know what the father was saying to you? And they said, no, it's just, I've got a deep peace in here. Something has changed. Something's happened to me on the inside. Um, on that note, we had, <laughs> when I was the director of Bible school in Tulsa, we had chapel and it was a time of worship. And the Lord was there during that that time. And he went and ministered to a couple of the students. You know, that brings me, you've got a couple hundred students there, Jennifer, in the chapel. And I'm up on the platform and there's the keyboardist over there and she's leading in the worship and everything. And we're in the midst there. And suddenly I feel the Lord's presence. Again, I feel it in my spirit. And then I, I look with my eyes and then I saw him coming and he walks up the steps and he stands in front of me. He says, I'd like permission to minister to my people. And I said, Lord, you're the Lord, go go right ahead. And to do that requires us to linger in the worship so the people's attentions aren't off to, you know, my bladder is full or do I have my paper for the next class? So we stayed in worship and I just watched the Lord go around to two or three different people or four different people. 
And then he came back up and he said, thank you for allowing me to minister to my people. And I said, does this not happen often? He says, he says many times, he said, they keep to their schedule and they don't allow me uh, time to minister and, and because they want to move on with their schedule. And then he, he disappeared. During that time, there were, we had about three people singing, three or four people singing back up. Uh, who were behind me on the platform. And this one lady in this time, she had like the microphone out like this. And, she, and then she she set it down and then she just stood there in worship. And she stood there frozen, Jennifer, for the rest of the time during the chapel, the short word that I shared. And then the next class came in, the, the guy's, the teacher's name was Jerry. And uh, Jerry came in and he's ready to teach his class. And she's still up there. And I can still see the shaft of light on her. She's just frozen. Her, and she, and I see this the shaft of light on her, and I tell Jerry, I said, I said, well, she's she's in a trance and receiving something from the Lord, and and so um, just go on and, and see what happens, and so he just went on with his class with her standing frozen <laughs> behind him, and it, it, she went off in like another thirty minutes or so, and then it just like faded away, and she like came to, and she's in the middle of this Bible school class up on the platform. It was, it was very gracious of the Lord to do that, but I've seen stuff like that a lot. But did you ask her what was she experiencing when she came out of it? She and her husband had both been drug addicts before they came to the Lord. And her husband, through the use of dirty needle, needles, had contracted AIDS and had died uh, a few months earlier. And now she found out that she had AIDS and uh, it was ministry, both related to her husband's death and some knowledge about her own life and everything. And she sadly, she did end up dying a couple years later uh, of the result of that. And I don't know if he foreshadowed any of that or not, but he brought her, she just said he brought great comfort concerning her husband and their lives because internally she felt so such a waste of time, such darkness that they'd been involved with and how she she really wanted to, to just make up for that darkness. And she felt a condemnation and guilt and that she had no reason for it. For the Lord in his graciousness, you know, he, he's made them both new creations in Christ and their lives had great impact on people around them. No big ministry or anything like that, but that's just their testimony of how they came to the Lord was very powerful. So um, there was comfort in that, in her place in him, in the Lord. And, and beyond that, I don't, I don't know. She, she, she didn't go into full, full detail, but she just said she really got ministered to. So we, I've seen stuff like that before with a, a spouse who's died. Sometimes not, sometimes there is, uh, it doesn't make up for their absence, but there's a, a point of grace and a point of, of graciousness that the Lord is to them. Uh, even though, you can't make up for the physical absence of a loved one. There's often the comfort because we do mourn, but we don't mourn like the world mourns. You know, we mourn with the hope and the certainty that there will be a reunion. So uh, that was quite fascinating, quite interesting. Yeah, people need. If I could, if I could talk about the ways of the spirit, you want to talk about behind the scenes? Yeah. Um, our earth bodies are made of earthly materials, so cannot stand to see uh, the Father God open faced. You know, in Exodus 33, within about four or five verses of each other, we are told Moses spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to his friend. And then a few verses later, the Lord says, you can't see my face and live. I've got to hide you in a cleft in the rock. The difference is being in the spirit or being in the flesh. 
You know, Daniel saw the ancient of saw him in a vision as the ancient of days to whom the Son of Man came and received a kingdom without end. Revelation chapter four is the Father God on his throne in heaven, to whom the Lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, in Revelation five, comes and takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So if you're in the spirit, you can see the Father, but in the flesh you can't. Uh, your your body couldn't stand it. So when you're around the, the Spirit of God, and what's happening is a lot of people will feel his presence. And I, I want to get back to how a person could be sensitive to to telling like when the Lord, the Lord's presence for healing is there, maybe when an angel's in the room or something like that. I want to get back to that to help kind of finish off that visitation uh, from October 1st. But first, let me share this. The earth, our earth body reacts differently than each person differently. Uh, to the Spirit of God. And so when the Lord turns up his power a little bit, it can affect your physical body, even though your spirit is fine with it, because your spirit is recreated by the Holy Spirit. You can flow in the power and the things of God, but your physical body, your earth body can't. So people may feel a warmth. They may feel goosebumps. They may feel flushed with the presence of the, of the Lord. Um, if he turns it up a little more, they may lose their strength and they may fall over. Like in John chapter 18, verses five and six, where Jesus, is, they're coming to get Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And they, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. That's all I said. I am. And they <laughs> fell backwards to the ground. If you, it goes a little bit further, if he turns the power up a little bit further, then they may be in a trance. They may be down for a while, you know, almost unconscious. Here's, here's the key, Jennifer. If he turns it up more, it will kill your body. And if he turns it up even more, it will transform your body into heavenly material. That's what happened to Jesus. Romans 6, 4 says that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So we are waiting for that time when our bodies will be molecularly changed from this earth suit, earthly material, to heavenly material. But there's that progression, and it's like an electric stove. You turn a little bit of electricity on, that little coil on top of the stove gets warm. You turn up a lot of electricity, it'll get orange hot, red hot. Well, imagine our bodies doing that same thing and then going beyond death to actually being transformed molecularly into celestial material, heavenly material. So that's, you know, that's people experience different things. That's that's what they're experiencing. And going back to what I said earlier is, you know, and, and we don't have time to get into it here, but an angel, the voice of an angel feels like a person who's anointed by the spirit. They feel almost like another Christian. Uh, they're a different class of being, but they still have the spirit of God. So a person could be in their room praying and worshiping, and you may feel like a presence, like that first time when the Lord disappeared and reappeared to me. And I, I told him, I said, it, it felt like a more an area of, of what I was looking at, an area close to me was more dense, uh, more mass, more weighty. And, and that's where his, his presence was weightier, was more dense there. And the more I gave myself to it, like Paul looking steadfastly at the man who had been crippled from his mother's womb, he, Paul had to steadfastly behold him, and then he perceived faith to be healed. It's the same way. You can be sitting there in worship. And maybe you've had this before where you felt like, okay, somebody's in the room. And it feels like the presence of the Lord, but it's not the Lord himself. You can tell there's a difference. That is often an angel, your, your angel that's there. Uh, maybe just worshiping with you, maybe just observing, uh, nothing to be afraid of. The things of the Lord are, 
uh, again, at abnormal versus normal Christianity. If you look at the book of Acts as normal Christianity, then these things will become normal to you. Does that make sense? If you, no, it makes you... really good sense. I mean, like, I feel like you explain things that, okay, we knew pieces of it. Like you, you, you brought out a big picture as opposed to like, see the forest or the trees, stuff like that. So we are actually seeing a bigger picture of some things that we already knew a little bit about, but you're expounding on it. Uh, I, I like to say revelation is something you always knew, but never realized. Oh, that's deep. Revelation is something you always knew, but never realized. So, wow. so the Holy Spirit will bear witness. It'll resonate with you. And it's like, yeah, I knew that somehow. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so when you're, and that's how you can go into a service and you can say, you know what? I feel like the presence of the Lord for healing is here, or somebody's going to get healed or somebody's going to get delivered today because you can get, you can become, a, you can become accustomed to and, 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 and well-trained in telling the mood of the Lord, so to speak. Early on, Jennifer, I'll let you share this. Early on, when I was first learning this, uh, as a as a young pastor and you know these visitations and everything, I as a pastor I would prepare for a Sunday morning sermon, you know, for a teaching, and I'd teach people. And there were times where I wouldn't get anything for Sunday morning. I mean, Thursday night, you know, it's like, Father, you got to tell me. It's like, what do you want me to share on Sunday morning? Friday, nothing. I remember su- the first time Sunday morning getting there with nothing. I've got a church full of people expecting something. We're in the midst of the worship and suddenly like three verses go boom, boom, boom down on the inside of me while I'm worshiping. And, and it's like, I know I'm supposed to teach on those three verses. And it happens just before it's time for me to get up and, and speak. And then, and then what happened was I'd sit there and I just go, father, you're not telling me anything. I don't have anything for this, for this morning. I said, if you don't count, tell me something, I'm going to get up there and I'm just going to tell him I don't have anything. That's <laughs> like, I'm trying to threaten father with revelation. I'm going to get up there. I really will. I mean, it. I dare you, you know, and, uh, and I learned, I learned that, that from just observation and some of the things that the Lord had said, that the way to go into a meeting, even in our house churches, I will, I will oftentimes ask, what is his mood? What, what's, is the emphasis going to be on, on worship? Is the emphasis going to be on the word or sharing revelation or teaching or something? Or is it going to be on ministry? Where is your mood, Father? What do you want to do? It's either going to be in in, in the word, the worship, or prayer. So I began as a pastor. And then then later when we started our house church meeting, you know, when when people lead, we take turns like like they did for the first 300 years. We take turns who leads. And we and we we rotate who hosts so that the burden is not on any one family. And so whoever is hosting often leads and it's not about sermons. There's no sermons involved. Uh, it, it's it's revelation. It's something God taught you this week. It's 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 just discussion oriented, not sermon oriented. House church I'm talking about. And so you know, I just I'll, sometimes I'll tell people I said just just ask him is your mood more in 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 the word, the worship, or or ministry? What do you what do you want? And if it's the word, sometimes he'll quicken a verse to them. Sometimes he'll he'll bring up an incident that happened earlier in the week, and it'll be about a revelation that they learned during this or that event. And and so you you follow life. I I, I say it this way: the the way we used to do church is that you and live is the way is we used to build a structure to form a structure. And then try to breathe life into it. You know, as a pastor, it's like, okay, we're going to start a bus ministry. Now we need volunteers. The bus ministry is the structure. And now we need volunteers. That's trying to breathe life into it. So in the old way, we used to build a structure, then try to breathe life into it. But the way I live now is I look for life. 
And then if life needs a little structure to help facilitate it, I build just enough to help the life. And when life changes, so can the structure because it's never a permanent fixture. And so it's, so instead of trying to breathe life into a structure, we try to find life and then just do what we need to do to facilitate that life. And you live like that. You look for those rhema words. You look for that revelation. And if something, like right now I'm reading about you know, half a dozen different things. Each one of those, I've had something that have been quickened to me or a revelation, things that I've, I'm speaking on. Uh, I was reading in in First uh, John, in the opening verses of First John, I just sat down to, to read First John 1. Uh, the, in the word, the word was was with God. The, I'm talk, not talking the gospel. I'm talking about first John, his, his first letter. And he said, we are here to tell you the life of God was manifested. We saw it. We held it with our own hands and the life was manifested. And that just jumped out at me in the first three verses, four verses, five verses of first John chapter one. I've been meditating on the fact that the life has been made manifest, that what we have is life. It's not philosophy. It's not it's not logic. It's not, um, you know, any wisdom of man. It is life. And Jesus is the life of the Father who was who became flesh, and now that life dwells in me. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing uh, goes back to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. I've been thinking on for some time what I mentioned earlier, the power of God that our, it goes from something that was quickened to me earlier, um, that our Faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What does that mean? And that's what we talked about earlier. So those are two things. And I so I've got two separate meals going on just in that alone that I'm chewing on. And I will shift my attention. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to go back and think more. Surely there's more uh, that I can receive about life. The life was manifested. Hmm. First John chapter one lines up with the gospel of John chapter one. So I'll go over there and I'm going to read about how John wrote how the in the gospel that the life of God was the light of men and how men some men love the darkness rather than the light and then they don't want to come to the light because their deeds would be exposed but the humble person will come to the light you know and, and so I meditate on these things because I've always lived with this motto race to the judgment run to the light that's that's just how I race to the judgment run to the light I just say father if there's anything impure in me then you know then shine your searchlight on it and clean it up. Let's let's get it dealt with because Jesus, you're going to have the final word in my life, and I want you to say, "Welcome, friend." You know, well done. You know, I want I want to be as pure as I can before Him, and I'm not perfect. Ask my wife, ask my kids, ask my grandkids. I'm not perfect. I'm, but I'm trying. You know, <laughs> trying to to mature even more. I think you're done pretty well so far. So let's talk about things in the future because you set yourself up. You mentioned to us that <coughs> home churches meant, or the Lord's told you that home churches are set now for a time to come. What do you believe the time to come will be? And you also mentioned that uh, in your newsletters, you tell of things that the Lord showed you of things to come. So do you mind elaborating on both of those? What is your... Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah I will to a degree. Let me tell you, Jennifer, uh, back um, a few years ago, I would share a few things prophetic online. And then I found there were so many trolls and so many ungodly people that it was not worth sifting through the junk and the people with issues and agendas and hatred and vitriol uh, to get to the the ones who were positively it was pearls before swine so so that's why I shifted 
anything that I say prophetic is in my monthly newsletter that is emailed out. Um, but I'll share a few things that I've shared there that if I could go back a little bit in time, and if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll just let it roll, John, let it roll. Okay. Back when president Bush and John Kerry were running for office, uh, when in that Kerry was the democratic nominee and president Bush was running, there was a different feel to the democratic party. And it was a different feel in the spirit in the same way. Like I said earlier, you know, an addict can sense another uh, the spirits of an addict because they grew up in that household that sort of thing but there was just something just a, about it so i said father what is what is that different feel and he said this uh, in the democratic party and this was again some years ago and he said this he said it's the spirit of socialism it can be delayed but it won't be stopped and i said where did it come from and he said it came from europe because there are some in this country that think the united states should be like europe and have European socialism. He said, but that's not what I've called this country to. So it can be delayed, but it won't be stopped. Okay, we're in the midst of that process now, some 20 years later. Uh, another thing, after the Patriot Act was passed, which, which was a result of the uh, Twin Towers falling, the attack on 9-11, and the Patriot uh, Act followed on that. And I said, Father, what do you think? I'm always asking the father his opinion on things. And that's a good practice for people to get in the habit of. Just talk to the father, just communication-wise. Just get to know your heavenly father. Um, because every prayer in the New Testament is to the father. From the Lord's prayer on, everything is to the father. If you want to know something, ask the father. He's, as James 1 says, he's the source of all, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. There's no variableness. There's no changing to his character. And of his own free will, he birthed us that we should walk in things that he's prepared. Anyway. So I said, what do you think of the Patriot Act? He said, he said, he said, laws that were passed to protect my children will one day be used against them. Okay. So flash forward, it's now, um, um, let's go, let me insert this one because it has nothing to do with, with this. It's just having said that, let me insert this just for safety zone. <laughs> during the Arab Spring, the Lord appeared to me uh, during the Arab Spring. And, you know, there are all these, a protest going on around the Arab nations. And I was asking about different nations and what would happen to them, Israel, et cetera. And I asked him about Egypt. Finally, this was like third or fourth, fifth question. And I said, what about Egypt? Is Egypt going to become like Iran? Is it is going to become a, a nation like Iran? And he said, no, he said, he said, Egypt will not, will not fall at this time of, uh, to be like Iran. And then he stopped and he said, but what are these things to you? As for you, you must be about the father's business. So that helped direct me away from the curiosity about what's the buzz, tell me what's happening, you know, to I've got to be about the father's business. So I exhort everybody who's watching and listening to, to that same degree. Okay, so in early was 2009, 2010, the Lord appeared to me and he said, he, he said, well, let me go back. Like I said, November 4th of 2001, when he told me to do this. And I asked him why he wanted me to start a house church and house church network. And he said this, structured in such a way to facilitate the development of house churches around the world. When I asked him, he said, and said, why do you want me to do this? He said, it's against a time to come. So be a resource for them, for it's against a time to come. So in 09, he, he appeared again and, and he said, you're going to see an underground economy develop in my body. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you'll, he said, you'll hear of giving and receiving, trading and trading and bartering, giving and receiving, 
buying and selling. I said, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking there's an underground economy anyway among Christians. We take care of each other. We we give casseroles to one another when there's a funeral or a sick person. There's this underground exchange of money and resources and services. And you've got, you know, youth groups going to rake an old lady's leaves, you know, in her yard in the fall. You know, you've, you've got this underground work that's going on in the body of Christ anyway at a certain level. So I said, what do you mean? And he said, he said, if you were to walk through Jerusalem after Pentecost, it would look much like it did in the Gospels. There were beggars in the streets, widows, orphans, lepers. There were people uh, begging for alms all over the street, just like it looked in the Gospels. He said, but if you were a widow in me, you had your needs, your needs were met. Your, you had family, you had a network of support. He said, that's the underground economy. And I and I I asked for for a reference to that, and he said, "You've re- have you not read in First Timothy five where Paul tells Timothy not to take a widow into the account until unless she's sixty two years of age and she has has served others, washing the feet of strangers and and operated in hospitality and serving another." He said, "This is not a handout." He said, "These women." were busy in ministry in serving others when they were received in to, to receive food and support. And he said many of these women moved into homes and became surrogate grand, grandmothers and nannies. And that's when I'd ask him, I said, I need chapter and verse on that. And he said, where do you suppose Paul got the that to be able to tell Timothy? I said, he learned it from Peter. He learned it from the first year after Pentecost. He said, exactly. And so I started to see that that there's coming a time in the body of Christ where we're going to be very um, focused on caring for one another. I mean, our organization, Church of That Wells International, our house churches around the world, we follow the biblical pattern that that in, in Scripture, what we see is each house church is responsible to take care of the needs within itself. They gave to leadership, which, you know, we have people who, who give into our ministry from different house churches. Uh, they give to one another. You're free to give give. To one another, you're free to give to, to ministry. You see that that each one, each house church is responsible for its own. But if there is a need that's larger than any uh, one house church, then they appeal to the network. And you see this in Acts chapter 11 in Ant- in Antioch when Agabus prophesied of the famine that would happen in Jerusalem and Judea. And so it says they received an offering and they sent it in with uh, Paul and Barnabas when they were headed to Jerusalem. You see it also in like Romans 15 and First. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So what you're going to see, Jennifer, is you're going to see people who are meeting in small groups and they're taking care of one another. If somebody is hurting, you know, they're going to be moved to to fill up their pantry full of food or or they're going to pay their utility bill. And if a need is larger, then they'll appeal to other house churches <coughs> that they know. Or we get requests, you know, in our organization, we, we give money out to those in our network. Um, because the needs often are, you know, emergencies happen. So in our network, we've done everything from paying doctor's bills to mortgages to tuition to car tires, you know, to all sorts of stuff as needs are larger than the local body can handle. It's, But it's going to expand, you know, throughout the body of Christ and in the West, especially. I think you already see it in places where there's persecution or economic difficulty. You see things like in China and India in particular, uh, but in the West, uh, with economic uh, difficulties and um, 
and persecution that's going to be coming up more so, where Christians are going to be blamed for the economic ills of the nation. You're going to see Christians gathering more and more and more into themselves. And uh, so you're going to have people on the outside who are looking with kind of envy and kind of wondering, you know, their needs are met. They've got this network of support. I'm all alone. And that's even Christians, unfortunately, who think that they're going to get their mortgage payment from their auditorium church, or they're going to, you know, they suddenly find themselves all alone because when they leave that church, they suddenly don't have friends or a network of support. It's, um, you know, we've got some, we've got some time yet, but I mean, that's, on down the road a few years that's where we're headed mm. but even this winter it's going to get tough so wow. so so what would you recommend that we do uh, my recommendation is relationship-based faith you know my book return of the first church and i'll make the same offer if somebody if, if anybody wants to email me at cwowi at aol.com i will gladly email you the pdfs to return of the first church which is my journey from the auditorium to relationship-based faith and also pursuing the seasons of God, which is about some of the early visitations uh, that I had with the Lord. Just email me at cwowi at aol.com and I'll be happy to email the PD PDFs to you. But what it is, Jennifer, is you have to prior prioritize. There's a lot in the West about uh, that Christianity is kind of like, Jesus, come be a part of my busy schedule. I'm going to schedule you in like I do the the gym and uh, the kids' soccer games and stuff like that. The time is coming when those peripherals are not going to hold the same place of importance. And we're saying, Jesus, I give you my whole life. And so Christ is in each believer, and it is actually a relationship-based faith. What I like to say, and I've said for years, is this. Anybody can say they're a Christian, but that is not proven. You can't prove that. Just because somebody says, hey, I'm a Christian too. It's unproven. In his wisdom, the Lord has made it so that his righteousness is proven within a framework of relationships. That's where righteousness is, is proven. And so my, my encouragement to, to every believer out there is think about that one or two people that you know that are on the same spiritual page with you. You know, or or somebody who you're not sure, invest in relationships, invest in the relationships, have a meal together. Many house churches, many house churches start with just people who are like on the same spiritual page, but maybe they're they're floating between churches or they're de-churched or they're unchurched. And they just they just will get together over a meal. Um, you know, Acts 242, Acts 242 lays out the four things. It's very simple in Acts 242. They were in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, food, and prayer. That keeps it simple. Have somebody over on a on a uh, some night for a meal. You're having fellowship, share what the Lord's been teaching you. And 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 maybe in the midst of that, you you talk about, hey, let's get together on a regular basis. Uh, whatever the case is, it's it's fellowship, food. Uh, prayer and uh, and teaching something that's on your heart that the Lord shared, and you keep it simple. You build the relationships, invest in the relationships, and and do this, Jennifer. We people tend to shop for churches the way they would in a shopping mall, and it's a very narcissistic cultural thing. Jesus said, you know, an evil generation looks for a sign, but basically that's what people do. They shop for a church like they're at some some mall, 
and saying, oh, this doesn't suit me very well. Oh, I saw signs and wonders over here. So I'm going to go over here. I want to see, you know, something spectacular. And they just want itching ears. They want their flesh tickled. I can tell you relationship faith based relationship based faith is mundane and boring. Jesus said in Matthew 25, the church he's coming back for, he said, I was hungry. He said, I was naked, hungry, thirsty, sick in prison, and you fed me, clothed me, watered me, visited me. That's a very low-key, under-the-radar, mundane faith that is close enough to individuals that you can help feed, clothe, water, visit, you know, take in in hospitality. But it's it's where it's at. It will affirm you differently. You walk into a house church and maybe it's or a small group meeting or you 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 risk you know meeting that friend at a coffee shop or over at a restaurant just to talk about your faith. There's a little bit of risk involved. You're not sure how they're going to receive your your thoughts about getting together on a base on a regular basis or just touching base. There's a little bit of a risk involved. It's not going to affirm you the way stained wood and pews and stained glass and a specific structure of service and, and it's not gonna it's not gonna affirm you in that way what happens is there's a shift that happens and you'll find that it's the people who affirm you it's what god is doing in their midst that affirm you you find i want to hear more about what the lord is doing in this family because wow he really did something amazing last week so how are they doing this week it's that sort of a thing that is real Christianity, down to earth. That's that's what it's about. Um, now let's swap over really quickly to Revelation. I think we mentioned Revelation chapter three, how you mentioned the great falling away isn't what we think it is right now. According to Jewish history, the great falling away doesn't mean what the Western world has been saying it means. What does it mean? <laughs> You're asking me to get into the talk. Uh, of, um, what she's talking about is there's not a short answer to it. Okay. Um, but real briefly, the doctrine of the rapture is a Jewish teaching from the Feast of Trumpets. God gave seven, actually six feasts and one fast to Israel, uh, four in the spring, three in the fall. And the four spring ones have been fulfilled. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Um, but there's another one called the Feast of Trumpets, which is also called Rosh Hashanah. There are different names to it. And it is noted by the blast of a trumpet. And that trumpet is called the last trumpet. Uh, there's a rabbi from years ago from the Mishnah, the, the commentary of Judaism, that says that the last trump was the right hand horn, the right horn of the ram that got caught in the thicket when Abraham offered Isaac. Um, the left horn was blown at Mount Sinai to gather the nation, and the right hand is blown, was blown during Isaac's sacrifice as a symbol of the resurrection. And that last trumpet has stayed in the folklore, in the tradition, in the religion of Judaism as it pertains to the Feast of Trumpets. It is, it is said in Judaism, okay, this isn't Christianity, in Judaism, when the last trumpet is blown, the dead in Messiah will come to life, will be resurrected, and will join Messiah in the air. In the air. And it's going to be a marriage feast, a, a celebratory feast. After They also will undergo individual judgment, but then followed by a, a huge celebratory feast. It's not a judgment of heaven or hell. It's a judgment of just what did you do with, with the life of God in you? That's Judaism. Okay. 
Feast of Trumpets begins is the only festival that begins during the new moon. That is when the moon is not shining, because in Judaism, the sun stands for God, the moon stands for believers. The moon was made to rule the night from Genesis chapter one. And so believers were made to rule the night, rule the darkness. And the reason it, it is blown when the moon is hidden is because the believers will be hidden away in the Lord. Uh, and so the, the new moon is a picture. So when you go out and say, oh, there's no moon tonight, that's a picture of the last trumpet having been blown and the believers being hidden in Messiah. Paul alludes to this in Colossians 2, 16, 17. He, he, call, he talks about the Sabbath and everything, and he says, and the new moon, which is a shadow of something to come. So Paul's talking about the new moon, talking about the rapture happening. It's a shadow of something to come. It's, it's Messiah hiding believers in himself. He, he, he quotes, Paul quotes in, in Ephesians chapter 5, I think it's verse 14, where he, he quotes part of the temple prayer during this time of, of Rosh Hashanah. I better say, say that right since I, in Ephesians 5.14, Paul quotes the temple prayer during Rosh Hashanah. Awake you who sleep, rise from the dead, and Messiah will give you light. Live soberly in the times, recognizing the times. Paul paraphrases that in, in Ephesians 5.14. So there is another mention of this rapture at the first at the feast of uh, or uh, the feast of trumpets, and so in Ephesians and Colossians. So when you get to Thessalonians in First Thessalonians, he mentions twice in verse nine, and then later in five in chapter five, he says God has not destined us to wrath, and he uses the phrase. So so when he talks about the trumpet will blow and we'll be gathered together with the Lord in First Thessalonians, they want more detail. And in 2 Thessalonians, he goes into detail, and he says that time will not come unless, and he uses the word, the falling away. And, and, and all the word means is, is departure or falling away. It can be translated as departure or falling away. And translators have added on from the faith. That's not in any manuscript. That's not in any Greek. That is just a paraphrase or somebody transposing their faith you know, onto it. And the the phrase falling away or departure is the word apostia. And you can look in the margin of the Amplified Bible. You can look in the Kenneth Wiest translation, W-U-E-S-T, I think it is. You can look in there and they bring out the fact, as well as other word studies, that that word originated, uh, I'm giving you a little more history now, that word means departure. And it was it originated with the falling away of a ship's sails as a ship sailed from port, it would fall away out of view over the curvature of the earth. And that that's what apostia, that's the original meaning of it. It meant departure. And Jennifer, the departure, that is the, the what we call the rapture that Paul talked about in Colossians 2, 16, 17, and, and Ephesians 5, 14, and 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians. All that he's talking about there is that the man of sin cannot be revealed until the departure comes first. <clears throat> and then he will be revealed, Paul says. That's the only way that verse works grammatically. Because otherwise, what he's saying is that the man of sin can't be revealed until the falling away from the faith comes. And that makes no sense whatsoever. It doesn't make sense. In fact, a couple of verses on down, he says, now you know what is withholding him from being revealed, and he's going to continue to withhold him until he is removed. The he being the body of Christ. The body of Christ is always referred to in the masculine 
only in only in uh, Ephesians five and in Revelation do we see uh, the the heavenly city like a bride adorned. And there's a couple of others that Jesus talked about um, as a bride, as as an allegory, as a metaphor rather. Uh, but everywhere else where the body of Christ is masculine. So so there in Second Thessalonians, he says, the man of sin can't be revealed until the departure comes first. Now you know what is withholding him until he'll be revealed in his time, until he is taken out of the way, then he'll be revealed. And so that is the only way grammatically that passage in Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians 2 makes sense. And so people can really be at peace. The question is, who gets to go? You know, Hebrews 9, 26 and 27 says, says uh, it is appointed for man once to die and after that the judgment. But for those who are looking for him, he will appear a second time to bring him their salvation. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, we all will be changed. So when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, you look at the issues in their lives. In chapter 3, they were caught up in strife and division. You go all the way to chapter 11, where they some of them wouldn't eat with each other because, because of the prejudice and the bias that was there in Corinth at the time. And he said, many are weak and sickly, and many have died early because you haven't properly judged the body of Christ, because they were so wrapped up in prejudice and bias. And yet Paul said, all of these people are going to go. So apparently it doesn't have to do as much with maturity as it does with the heart doing what you know to do to live for God, even in the midst of your imperfections. And we all have sinned. We all, we're all equal in that way. We all depend on the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sin. You know what I mean? So I'm not one to judge hearts. That's God's realm. I can judge the fruit of a person's life. We're told to do that, you know, in Matthew chapter seven, but I don't want to judge a person's heart. That's between them and the Lord. But I would, but it appears from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that although all those carnal Corinthians are expected to run, to go up. So, you know, the, they're carnal, but they're looking for the Lord. You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I do know this that the word apostia means departure, and it's got to be meaning the rapture, the, the feast of trumpets, the Jewish festival that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 5:14. Colossians 2, 16, 17, 1 Thessalonians, the whole uh, book saying we're not destined to wrath. And people don't understand, Jennifer, the word wrath there is a very Jewish thing. It always refers to the days of wrath, the last days of mankind during, during when Antichrist is alive and well and functioning on the earth, the days of wrath. And, and that's a very Jewish thing as well. And Paul said, we are not called to the days of wrath. Wrath is one of the terms that's very Jewish. Um, and that's why he said first Corinthians, what is it? One or first Thessalonians one, is it nine or 10? He says, yeah. God's not called us to, to wrath. To wrath. He said it again in chapter five, mm -hmm. he said, comfort, you know, comfort yourself with that. So yeah, yeah that's and good. Yet, I never heard that. Cause like, I, like, I, I knew, I always knew that, uh, we're not, um, we're not, what do you call it? What did you just say? We're not destined to the wrath of God or whatever. We're wrath, not, yeah. yeah. The wrath. The wrath. But I didn't know that when the Bible mentions wrath, it's talking about a particular time. Right. That's yeah. Good. Very Jewish thing. And 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 Judaism also teaches that when the last trumpet is sounded, that symbols the resurrection. Remember, it, it was it happened at Isaac's sacrifice. It, it is always symbolized resurrection. But in Judaism, then what happens is the the books are opened, and God judges or holds accountable the, the remaining people on the earth, and they are divided into three groups. 
Um, the book of remembrance is open. That's alluded to and mentioned in Malachi actually, but um, the books are open and God separates in his mind uh, the world into three groups, the, the completely righteous, the completely wicked. And then the largest group is called the intermediates. And to this day, it is called the intermediates in Judaism. And the intermediates are by far the largest group. And they have until Messiah comes to decide their fate. Um, the fact that there are those who are completely righteous after that time tell us that many people are going to come to the Lord during that last uh, seven years or time frame in, in the earth. And I think the book of Revelation brings that out. Uh, because in Re Revelation 6, there are millions of martyrs before the throne uh, in heaven, the 144,000, et cetera, as well. So there are a lot of believers that happen that will miss the rapture. And they're probably unbelievers. I think they are unbelievers, but they have been told and been told and been told. And then however it happens, you know, Paul said to the unbeliever, the coming of Jesus will be like a thief in the night. And a thief in the night, if you play that out as a metaphor, it means somebody breaks into your house to take something that doesn't belong to him. And that's the world's perspective of the rapture. Jesus came to get something that doesn't belong to him. He took my wife. He took my, my husband. He took my kids. He took my grandchildren. He took whatever. That'll be their perspective. Jesus is like a thief in the night who broke in and took something that doesn't belong to him. The reality is we do belong to him. But the world's perspective will be Jesus is a thief in the night. And 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 so anyway, that's why many people will come to the Lord after the rapture. They'll say, wow, this really happened. And so you have the completely righteous, the completely wicked who harden themselves against the Lord, and then the intermediates. And they have until, and the rest of the revelation, the rest of the last seven years is all about trying to win those people to the Lord, that they'll make it right. So, And I'm glad you mentioned to the unbeliever, he'll come like a thief in the night. Yeah. So which means, do so you feel like we'll know something the day of? What well, Paul wrote that to the Thessalonians. He said, it's not for me to, I don't need to tell you the times and the seasons, you know, but when they say peace and safety, then destruction comes. They will say, you know, that he comes as a thief in the night. So it's going to be interesting to see. And, and I think that's what the excitement is in the body of Christ that, you know, everybody knows we're, we've got to be closing in on something. You can feel it in your spirit. It's a mystery. It's a secret. It's not for us to know, but, um, but anyway, you can tell that we're getting close because there are a lot of end times scriptures that are just lining up, just, you know, just in order. It's amazing. Ooh, amazing times so to, right. to live in. Yeah. Do you believe that God intends for everyone to be in the spiritual and in the natural, like the Lord has given you the ability to? You know, I believe that we can all be sensitive to his realm of the things of, like I said, to be sensitive, what his mood is. You know, when you walk into a church service or a home gathering or whatever, the however you celebrate the gathering of the saints, that you can be sensitive to that and that you, I believe you can be sensitive to what he's trying to share with you or if there's an angel in the room or, or you know, if the Lord is in a service, that sort of a thing. I can't, I can't do anything to, to say, you know, the Lord's going to open your eyes to see him or to see an angel. I can, I, I believe we're all called to be sensitive to his spirit. Uh, to know what's going on in the spirit, to have a degree of sensitivity. I know it's a lifelong process. I mean, speaking, you know, from experience, it's a lifelong process. And 
uh, but the the discerning of spirits that is uh, manifesting um, somebody's eyes open to the spirit realm or something like that that's that's on him I don't know about that I can teach people to to be sensitive to a spirit to be able to tell his mood so to speak you know where are you moving today sort of thing uh, there's a place in Luke where it says the the power of God was there to heal you know it's like okay sometimes he's there for healing sometimes not uh, sometimes the the Lord wants to go in a different way. Anybody can be trained to be sensitive to that if they will listen to take their mind just what's happening in the spirit and just say, Father, teach me, help me to be sensitive. And it'll be in subtle ways through your daily life. A person at the store, person at work, picking up on it, that person that crosses your mind all week long, responding to that. It's like Hebrews 5.14 says, it's by trial and error. It's by reason of use. You train yourself in this. But beyond that, I, 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 who knows? You know, The Lord has to be able to trust people. And a lot of people are like, well, if only I saw Jesus, you know, if I could just ask him one question, or it would be so great if I saw Jesus or my angel, or or if, if you see Jesus again, could you ask him about this or that? And they would elevate that experience above where it should be. Like I said, if you have the mindset that the book of Acts is normal Christianity, then you're just going to take it in stride. You're just going to say, you're just going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I was worshiping last night and I sensed my angels in the room. And the Lord just really downloaded something to me. It's not like I heard a voice, but there was just a download of something that my mind doesn't know yet, but I was affected in my spirit. Um, and it's just part of my life. Then you'll go about your life and the Lord can trust you with more. But if you're going to run around, go, oh, I saw an angel or I saw Jesus or whatever, then he's not going to because he's not into uh, into causing people to, to get lifted up in pride or or arrogance or or something like that or. You know what I'm saying? It's just, mm -hmm. if you have that mindset, this is normal Christianity to move in the things of the spirit, that Christianity has to be supernatural. Um, then, then you will long for it. You'll long for that righteousness. You'll long for his presence in your life. You'll start talking to the father conversationally. Then you'll listen for the quiet reply. You'll listen just for the very subtlety. You'll get up in the morning and the first thing you'll do is check his presence down in there. Say, oh, that's so warm. It feels so good. You know, your presence is in me. And and you'll, you'll learn to commune with him on that level, spirit to spirit. And, and it's a way of life. What he does beyond that, that's up to him. As always, a wealth of information, John Finn. <laughs> so where can people find you again? I know you mentioned it twice or three times, but I want you to mention yeah. it again. And where can they get your book, Pursuing the Seasons of God and Return of the Home Church? Yeah, Return of the First Church uh, is my journey from the auditorium to relationship-based faith. Um, on our website is a good place. I, I, don't, I don't know the ins and outs of Kindle and Amazon and stuff, but I know the e-versions are out there. Uh, but our website, cwowi.org. And on our website, you, you've got resources. Uh, there's all kinds of things there. Uh, you can go like network details. You can see all the, some things around the network. You can see some of the kids and everything in Uganda and Kenya that we support uh, as part of the house churches there. Um, just updates around. And I, let me tell you this too, sign up for my weekly thoughts and my monthly newsletter, because we don't announce conferences and Zoom meetings and stuff like that on the website. You know, that's only in the headers of my weekly thoughts, which is the weekly teaching and my monthly newsletters. And that's simply because again, you know, we really only, we don't want people who, we just want the people who are genuine, who are really looking for God and looking for people on the same spiritual page. Um, and now with a, a network in, in over 50 nations and people who aren't even in house church yet, 
but they at least uh, are meeting other people through our Zoom meetings, through online meetings and conferences and stuff. They're meeting people on the same spiritual page and then just builds momentum for them. So cwowi.org, sign up for my weekly thoughts. Also be aware, Jennifer, and you're very gracious, but I also do a weekly teaching, short weekly teaching on YouTube. Uh, the seven to 14 minutes in length every Wednesday morning they're posted. I've been doing it for five years. So that means there's, there's what, 250 or so teachings on there. Either look me up by name uh, or look up Super House Church, all one word on YouTube. And uh, and as always, Jennifer, this is a wonderful, we, we just covered so much today, but I really appreciate your, uh, your friendship, your graciousness, your camaraderie in the spirit. Um, and I just, like you, I just want to bless the body of Christ. I just want, I want people to know the ways of our heavenly father so they can walk in the ways. The acts will follow. The miracles will follow. But if you know his ways, then he can commune with you in ways that are a little deeper than just looking for water out of a rock or, you know, manna in the wilderness. So anyway, thank you so much, John. I mean, you've always been an inspiration to me. I've been following you for, I think, five years because your ministry wow. is so profound and it's so biblical and it's it's supernatural and it's natural and it's always backed up by the word of God. So that's why I really find that your ministry is something really profound. And I don't say that about a lot, but you're doing something really great for the kingdom. So could you close us out in prayer um, sure. for those who want to know the Lord and the way that you've been able to know him, not in a prideful way, like you mentioned earlier, just right. to say, I saw Jesus or an angel, but that I really want that relationship with Jesus Christ where I want to walk yeah. in the spirit. Yeah. And it's really, especially with the father, especially the father, God, you, you know, I always ask father, like Ephesians 1, 17 and Colossians 1, 8 and 9. And, and uh, that you would, continue. I pray for everybody here that you would open the eyes of their understanding and that Ephesians 3, 14, 15, that you would strengthen them by your spirit in their inner man so that they can know the height, depth, length, breadth, the width, the fullness of the volume of the love of Christ. Father God, that there are people who don't want religion anymore. They are tired of the politics. They are tired of being hyped. They're tired of all the distractions. They would love you, Lord, if they could know you outside of the way you are packaged to them. And I pray for those people there who are hungry to know you, Lord Jesus, and know you, Father. Like John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but nobody comes to the Father but by him. Father God, you are our destination. Jesus is the way, but but Father, you're the destination. So I ask that you draw people to yourself, that you strengthen them by your spirit, that you open the eyes of their understanding, that the ways that, that we've talked about here will resonate with them, and that it is a new chapter in their lives. I ask from this time forward that this, this new work, that it'll be a rhema words to them, it'll be words deposited, it will be nourishment, spiritual nourishment in their lives, and that that, that you will just feed them continually, even even month or two, like so often happens, a deposit is made, and then two or three months later, you go back and you say, oh, that deposit happened two months ago when I sensed that in the spirit or when that happened to me. Let it be like that, Father God. Let these things that they've always known but never realized just continue to bring forth like a wellspring of living water out of their spirits to, to water their lives, to truly transform their lives, to enter a new chapter, a new season in you a new depth. And I thank you for it, Father. Let our eyes always be on you, Father God. Let us let us always be thinking about uh, that shifting between our soul and our spirit man so that we can walk in the in the in the senses 
of our spirit and be sensitive as we walk through life. And we thank you for doing all that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And John Finn, thank you so much for this amazing wealth of information. That's what I'm going to always identify you by, wealth of information. Thank you so much for doing this once again. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later.